What's up, Rocco? Thank you for being the first in-person guest here on the Dot Daddy podcast. I'm really thankful to have you here. I'm honored to be Dat Daddy's very first uh, in-person interview. This is fantastic. So let's get to it. You are Motorcycle Santa. You're the guy. You're Motorcycle Santa. You started the charity. How did it happen? Uh, back in 2015, a couple of days before Christmas, I was checking out the weather, and it was supposed to be 72 degrees. I said, you know what? I'm going to take my bike out and go for a ride. Um, so I was planning on riding that day. And it's Christmas, so I got on Amazon. I was like, I'm going to order a Santa suit and ride around a Santa. And then um, that turned into ordering an elf suit. And then I had my buddy Jay join with me and turned into, let's go to the store, buy some gifts, and hand some stuff out. So it was all kind of last minute. Amazon package came the day before. And then Christmas morning, it was um, raining the night before, but it cleared up first thing in the morning. And we just suited up dressed as Santa and an elf and got a bag full of stuff and just started riding around and it was uh, just a hit. Everybody driving Christmas morning to their families and whatnot, just handing presents out at red lights and ended up going on the news. Uh, it was on, I forget what channel, but it ended up being on the news that night and that's kind of where it all started. Wow. So you just thought, hey, I'm just going to buy some presents and then I'm going to hand them out to random kids? Yeah, exactly. Wow. <laughs> now, was it because did you see did you see kids without presents, or were you just thinking I have extra money, I don't have any kids, you know, let me help the less fortunate? Like, what were you kind of? Uh, it was more just like a fun, random act, you know, to try to you know make people smile, and um, that's kind of how it started. And then um, I was bartending at the time, so all my bar regulars were like, oh, we saw you on the news handing presents out, you know, let us know if you do it next year. Like, we'll donate some presents. And that's what kind of turned it into just like a funny idea to like, you know, we could be have some charitable drive to it. And so the next year, um, I did a little toy drive at Catherine Rooney's when I was bartending. So all my bar regulars brought in tons of donations. And I had, well, you know, I got all these toys now. And or I'm sorry, AI DuPont Hospital that year, they were down like 80% on their donations that year. It was 2016. So somebody connected me with a nurse there like, hey, we're really hurting on donations. You know, if you have all these extra toys and that's kind of where the connection was made. And uh, that year is when we, you know, built the sleigh. That's when I was like, you know what? I don't really have room in this bag for all this stuff. So my buddy, Matt Edgar, he's a custom welder. So he fabricated a sleigh last minute and hooked up a hitch to my bike. And then that's, what, that's when it really grew uh, feet and started to run. <laughs> wow. So the sleigh that you said he kind of threw it together. I mean, is that the sleigh you have now? Because that thing's incredible. No, that that one, that um, we had that one for about three or four years, and then um, he rebuilt another one with like lights and just kind of put some bells and whistles on it and did it up. Yeah, it's it's we still have both, but uh, uh, after like three years, we redid it and, and built a bigger one and a better one. <laughs> it's badass, and he. He painted it and all that? He, he built that thing entirely from scratch. He bought an axle and some wheels from Harbor Freight uh -huh. and measured and fabricated and cut every single part of both of those sleighs. And actually inside of it, there's a battery. So the lights and everything operate. It has speakers on it. So you can operate your phone. You can put uh, Christmas music on and play. So when we're stationary set up somewhere, um, I can have Christmas music playing directly from the sleigh. And it's got a battery on the inside. 
So it all runs off of that. So it's pretty sweet. It's multi multifunctional. I got the ride in it, people. Yeah. I'm one of the fortunate people who actually got the ride in it. Not that many have ridden in it, but it does. I've taken people out on the road and the highway. It's it's fully safe and ready to rock. And what about hooking it up to the back of your motorcycle? Now, have you done that before? Like basically towed something? Um, that was my motorcycle. That was the first thing I've ever towed with my bike. Okay. And like I said, it was the second year all my bar regulars were donating and we had all and we were making the connection with the hospital i'm like hey these guys really need toys and then i'm like all right what can we do to, to add to it make it more fun and i'm like what if i had a life-size sleigh to pull and then that's where matt came in last minute and um just like any other motorcycle trailer it's just a sleigh instead of like a uh a, a pull behind camper or something that a lot of people use and you actually because your charity has grown so much you have so many donations it they don't even fit in the sleigh like you have a whole separate trailer yes yeah so you know we can only fit so much in the sleigh um that he built a giant uh it's like a santa sack and it's a it's a a dump trailer that has a top to it and it looks like a giant you know santa's bag it's red and it lights up and we fill the entire thing with toys and donations and then we have a couple other trucks that follow behind us that carry even more because we, we get so many donations now. And um, it's amazing. I, I, I'm so happy. I just want to back up. So the reason that Rocco's kind of here and that we're talking is because I guess three years ago, I texted Rocco. I said, hey, I know you got... Now in the past, I had I just donated money. I was like, this is a cool charity. I'll donate some money, right? And then I'm like, hey, Rocco, I got this idea for this commercial you get a hairline right in the back of the the sleigh uh, down the road being ridiculous and then you hit me up a couple months later you're like hey joey i like the video work will you film will you film us for the day and so i was like fuck yeah i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna film you yeah i'm honored thank you and uh so i got to see everything behind the scenes and it's so impressive i mean who's who's the guy who who shop you actually go to for all the setup uh, that's Matt, Matt Place, my best friend. I've known him my whole life. Um, he has a architectural woodwork, does carpentry trim work. Um, and so, you know, we need, we don't have a brick and mortar as of now. So he, uh, pretty much lets us use his shop and, and, um, set everything up and organize all the donations. And you saw, there's a lot of logistics that go behind it on the actual day of the parade. There's it's a lot like of, a big it, I mean, it is, it's, like it's, it's stressful. Yeah, once we get done, it's just kind of like, but it's a lot because, you know, we're at the point now, you know, like I said, the second year we teamed up with the hospital, donated there, and then we got connected with the Ronald McDonald House, which is an awesome organization. Um, Pretty much they house people from out out of state that are there getting medical treatment at AI. Um, They have 50 different rooms, so now we're at the point where we have two rooms there that we sponsor covers the fees for families to stay there so if they're from out of state they don't they pretty much stay there for free um and we donate a lot of toys um to their uh santa room for kids staying there that can throughout the year they have something to pick from and then we donate to smaller charities as well you know ascending queens is one where they adopt 25 families during the holidays that are in need so they come with their christmas list and and you saw how many you know have so many donations they have plenty to pick from uh my sister works with you know special needs kids so she gets about 20 different families a year and you know we donate to them so we, we really help 
supply these other people that are helping out families on a more personal level with you know christmas presents it really is amazing to see i mean and these aren't cheap dollar store presents i mean they're like real presents real gifts yeah we get there's some good stuff and you know i remember one last year two years ago there was a uh at the ronald mcdonald house i, I think we had an ipad donated and we kind of had to hot, put some stuff aside because the kids were going a little nuts um and we kind of hand selected you know after talking to the families like what they wanted and one little girl in particular really wanted an ipad and we we gave that to her and she was you know made her day so there's a lot of good donations in there too it's i love seeing it uh i try i try i get a little choked up just watching and i'm just filming it and you're going around handing you handle it so well because there's so many moving parts at the same time. And then when it all comes together, when we get to the Ronald McDonald house, we pull up, uh, Elsa's, you know, screaming on the speaker. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so bizarre. And people don't know what to make of it. Cause you got a guy dressed like a biker Santa pulling a sleigh. And then behind him is a guy dressed like the Grinch riding a motorcycle. And then Frosty, the snowman's riding. And then there's a giant dump truck with a DJ on top of it with a microphone and people. And the whole thing is guided by a police escort. So they're stopping the intersections and people just don't know what to make of it. And that's that's what I love about it, because that's kind of how it started. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it seems like every year you're getting more and more donations. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Every year is getting getting growing more and more so i know you said the you had so there was the uh the two charities were about 20 and 25 families and that doesn't even count all the stuff you're giving to the ronald mcdonald's house do you have a rough idea of i guess how many kids are directly impacted by it do you have that um to be honest it'd be tough to put a number on like i said you know there's a couple smaller charities that we donate uh a lot of families will private message us like on the Facebook page, you know, and we'll sort through and there's some people that are in really bad situations and, you know, prideful and they don't like reaching out. So, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, connect with those and, and donate to them on the side. Um, and the Ronald McDonald house, when we do the delivery day, um, it's all the families that are there, you know, stuck at the hospital during the holidays it can be anywhere you know from 10 families to 20 it, it really is kind of hit or miss so when we deliver there it's kind of good because they get to come out and they're hands-on and they're interactive and, the kids are high. and they and they love it but then the bulk of what you see like in the trailer goes into a room there so it's a year-round operation there so you know people flying from outside of the country across um different states that are staying there you know they have that room to pick from so the kid had like a surgery or something and they come back to the, the house they can go in there and, and they can pick something out of the room so they they always have stuff year round for the families you know toys and stuff to take for the kids so it's not just on christmas if that makes sense yeah no i saw that because they were i mean there were so many donations uh from everybody that after the kids got and the kids picked plenty of presents and I like how you let them kind of just have at it. Yeah, yeah, it did, and it and it makes their day, man. It it and they're wheeled away in bins. So they take it out of the big dump truck, put them in these bins, and then wheel these huge bins into the Ronald McDonald house, and then give out even more presents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see the back room is just full, full of stuff. So, how does that um, how does it make you feel that? you're able to make such an impact and i know you're a humble guy but you know what does what's your uh long-term goal like do you want to see it continue to grow 
Yeah, I mean, like right now, it, it every year it just gets bigger and more people are reaching out. And, you know, I we got a hell of a team, you know, me, Lauren, Pete, Joey, and Matt, and everybody kind of has their own tasks and department that, that they handle. And, you know, the logistics of it is, is a lot to handle. It gets stressful. Um, but at the end of the day, once we're done the ride, like it, once we get to the Ronald McDonald house, it makes all the stress worth it. And, and, um, it's just very humbling day. Yeah. Does that make, yeah. And, um, I like that you brought, brought them up and I know you're here, but your team does a lot. So can oh, yeah. we go over what each now Matt does the Grinch and he does such a phenomenal job at playing the Grinch. He, I've never seen anyone go into character. He takes that role very seriously. He he compares himself to Jim Carrey, because um, you know how when Jim Carrey goes into character, he's sold completely in. Oh, he's in it. And his makeup yeah. is perfect. So you know, Matt always jokes when he's getting his makeup done in the morning, he transforms from Matt into the Grinch, and he one hundred percent does though. He's he really yeah, does. he steals the show every time, and it's it's great because he's he sounds like him, he runs like him, he's got the moves down. You know, he pre, he'll watch the movie over and over before and build up, and he just he's knocks it out of the park every time. It's great. And then, uh, what, what's his B? I mean, uh, that's his business. What's the, what's the name of his business? Call that out. Uh, TKI Taylor Klein Incorporated. And what um, do they do for people? As far as their like, like, what what do they sell? Oh, uh, he does uh, architectural woodwork, uh, finished cabinetry, trim work, um, pretty much anything along along those lines. So shout out to TKI. TKI, absolutely. And uh, what's Lauren's role? Now Lauren handles all the social media. A lot of the communications, you know, email and different points of contact, setting up the logistics, you know, dates, um, flyers, literature, you know, you know, if, you know, we have a toy drive at this, this place at this time, she comes up with the flyer and the ad. She's really good. She's also yeah. Yep. All that. And then, you know, she handles a lot of the groundwork, like communicating with people, like emailing back and forth. Um, she's down in Florida right now. So she's spending, uh, I think she's. I don't know how long she's moving down there, but spending like six months. So we've been having our board meetings and we just do pretty much like a Zoom meeting. So everything that we need from her, she can handle from her laptop. And she does that. You know, that's kind of her her uh, her business. She does that. You know, she handles social media for different bars and restaurants and kind of is like a, a, a freelance um, she does a great job. She's Elsa, by the way. And she plays Elsa. Yes, yeah, so everybody has their character as well. <laughs> and what? And Pete, what? What's Pete's role? So Pete, uh, he plays Rudolph. He uh, is the original day one. You know, when I when I did this the very first year in 2015, Jay Knowles was my elf on the back. But Pete actually followed me around with the GoPro in his minivan and made a, it's. I'll have to show it to you. There's a YouTube link to it. It'd be kind of cool to compare that video toward the one that you guys did this well, past year. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. So he was with me the day one, year one, um, and he's just built it up with me ever since. You know, been like my right hand man on everything. That's Pistol Pete. Right? That's Pistol Pete, and he he does a lot of running around. Ground, he just he can I curse? Yeah. He he gets shit done. Yeah. You know, hey Pete, we need this, this, and this, and he got it. Goes, yeah. gets it done, comes back. He's really, really organized. Um, he's uh, he's he's the man. <laughs> and you also and and who else who else is in there? Uh, Joey. He plays Frosty the Snowman. Okay, 
And what's his role? Um, Joey's, I would say he's more like the driving force. He's kind of always in, in my ear and our ear saying, Hey, we got to do this. We got to do this. And it just gets on everybody, you know, just, you know, kind of works from the shadows. He doesn't like the spotlight or attention. So he's kind of in the background, like telling us what's wrong and what we need to do. Okay. And which I mean, everybody does a great job. Let me ask you this. How did you get DJ Hugh, the, he's, isn't he the Sixers DJ or something? Yeah. Oh yeah. He, he, well, I bartended at North beach down at the beach for six or seven summers. And he was like the resident DJ down there. So I've, I've known him a long time, real good friend. And it was kind of like when we asked you to film it, I pitched him the idea and it was a no brainer. He goes, just tell me to date and I'll free it up. And you know, he, that's a, December is a, bu a busy month for DJ. So he blocks that night off on a night where he probably could have had a, a better paid gig yeah. to do that. So he donates his time to us for it, uh, which he doesn't have to do. And he's more than happy to do it. So it's awesome. And he's a great DJ. Yeah. He's really good at mixing the Christmas stuff with like the newer, newer, uh, pop stuff. Um, and, and to put it in perspective, and we'll pull up a visual, but I mean, they're riding around on a flatbed truck with the DJ booth. And yeah, literally, we hook up a generator, and the, the flatbed has the DJ booth, and it has a microphone, so, you know, we can talk and interact and blast music, and um, we, like I said, we have the police escort, so we kind of get away with whatever <laughs> hey the police escort helps when you're doing charity and you're giving back to the community and i think everybody is happy involved now um let's talk about the the 5k which is leading up to so today is what october 19th 2023 and when is the 5k um it's saturday november 25th it's the saturday after thanksgiving this is our third year doing it um and it, it's a great weekend to do it because thanksgiving everybody's home people that moved away they're home visiting their family they usually stay for the weekend and it's in trolley square uh, in front of Catherine rooney's and this year i'm really excited for because we got a lot of a lot of new stuff so it you know kicks off in uh front of Catherine rooney's you walk to the park across the street goes along the brandywine but we're kind of having like a nice big after party i have uh there's a moon bounce it's going to be live music I actually have a petting zoo, I have pony rides, and I have face painting coming as well to make it more family-oriented because we noticed last year there's a lot of families that came out. Kids. Yeah, a lot of friends with their kids came out. So, you know, we were looking at our notes from last year, and that was one of our goals. We got to make it more family-oriented, you know, so when the race is done, you know, little kids that didn't run, they need something to do, so... And all that is in included. You can sign up the registration for the race. Or if you're not a runner and you just want to come hang out at the after party, um, you can buy a wristband for that. And everything's included. The moon bounce, pony rides, face painting. There's a petting zoo. There's going to be an alpaca there. Um, we'll have buffet food on the patio, Rooney's. Um, and then Rooney's will be wide open. So you're more welcome to go in there, have a couple beers in there, get some food in there. You get a drink ticket too, don't you? Yes, the runners get a drink ticket. I believe it's one or two beers. So when you're done a race, you get a complimentary beer. Um, and then you can just mingle, hang out at the party. You know, we'll have food, coffee. And how much And how much does it cost to, to donate? I know you can donate more, but what's the minimum cost just to enter the 5K? Uh, for runners, it's $30. That includes the race registration um and everything with the after party and if just the after party ticket is twenty dollars per person per person and you can check out the website you can 
you can do either or on motorcyclesanta.org. Um, if you go to the Instagram page, uh, the link is there. Or you can sign up in person. We'll have open registration the morning of. Uh, the race starts at 10. Registration's at 9. So you can show up 9 to 10 and sign up on the spot. And all you got to do is just go to Charlie Square. If you go to Charlie Square, you'll see it. It's all blocked. Yeah, off. we will have the street blocked off. And we encourage people to dress up. Uh, last year, we had some really, really good outfits. And I know it's tough. It's like Thanksgiving. And then two days later, you're thinking about Christmas. But, you know, it's a short period of time. So... Uh, we encourage people to dress up. There'll be a prize for best dressed. Um, so the more Christmas attire, the better. And you were even given prizes to people who completed it in different age brackets. Yes, we're still working on um, exactly what the prizes are going to be, um, but there'll be age age group prizes. It's cool that you recognized. Them. Oh yeah, yeah. My nephew won one of them. Uh, so yeah, there was I'm a kid who was like 18 who just blasted by everybody. Dude, yeah, that was actually Joey um joey the frosty the snowman it was his little cousin okay and that kid he blew it out of the water i couldn't i couldn't get over it i forget what his time was but it was faster than any any 5k i ever ran in my life so we got to get him out there too see if somebody can beat him Um, (laughs) another uh thing that i did want to bring up so in regards to the 5k if you don't like for example I, i said i brought my son if you're not a runner, you can just walk with a wagon or push a stroller. You don't have to be, hey, some marathon, I'm going to go run, I'm going to go running. You know, you don't oh, yeah. have David Goggins. You can just show up and walk with your family. Yeah, we have encourage that too. And it's it's scenic. It's right along the Brandywine, so it's a nice walk. And like I said, that's what we noticed last year. There's a lot of families with kids, a lot of, a lot of walkers as well as runners. So that's why we were trying to focus the after party, you know, giving everybody something to do, to hang around, you know, something the kids and the whole family can do. So, you know, bring the stroller, you can walk it, or if you want to go aggressive and run, there'll be some runners there too. So it's just, you know, kind of a nice all day event. Yeah. And where, where can people, in regards to all this money for the 5k, ultimately gets donated to the motorcycle Santa charity you use it yes yeah it's all charity. proceeds for for the charity and it can and it is a tax write-off technically right? it is or if, if whatever donate donation you make you can pay more than the thirty dollars you know if you want to make a larger donation it is a tax write-off yep and you can do that online there and um you know we send out tax write-off templates at the end of the year for anybody that requests them okay and then what if people want to donate presents? Are they allowed to do that? How's that work? Um, the day of the 5K, it's an option. Uh, most people uh, kind of wait till, you know, because we, we have so many events going, you know, into December, closer to the ride, that not so, that many people donate to the 5K. Uh, but, you know, what we'll, other events? So, like, if, hey, I want to buy a few presents, where do I drop them off to make sure that Motorcycle Santa gets? We're, we're, that's what we're working on right now kind of organizing the previous years we did a lot of like bar events like happy hours and stuff like that i don't know if we're going to be doing that many this year um i know our biggest one is um the toy drive at Catherine rooney's which um we're still figuring out the date for that it might be the week of or the week after the ride but um you know detro was my good friend he passed away um not that long ago but he was a huge supporter of the charity um and he did a toy drive at Catherine rooney's and donated to us so after he passed you know we wanted to keep that going and 
Detroit's toy drive in his memory. So we're kind of going to double down on that night and try to make that the bulk of the donations. And, and instead of doing a lot of different smaller bar events, just kind of double down on this one, and which is at Catherine Rooney's. I don't have the exact date for that yet, okay. um, but that's probably the best opportunity um, to donate. That's beautiful you guys are doing that, keeping that in his memory and keeping it going. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we just had a uh, Memorial Golf Tournament form uh, two weeks ago. Uh, that This was the third annual, and it was, it was a hit. Very cool. So, Okay, so then... Make sure if you want to donate to Motorcycle Santa, if anybody listening to this or watching this, donate to Motorcycle Santa. It's going towards a good cause. Help them out. It's amazing. The kids love it. It's, I mean, if you haven't seen it, come out, check out the event, do the 5K. If you don't want to do the 5K and you don't want to do the party, you can still go online and you can still donate. Yeah. And um, I guess while we're still on the subject, just a little back on like the Ronald McDonald House. Yeah what they kind of do i touched on it earlier but just to be a little more specific they kind of serve as like a home away from home for like um because we meet all the families every year I and mean, there's people from outside of the state outside of the country um which that, is crazy by the way that people come outside of the country yeah i didn't realize how top-notch of a hospital ai dupont was until we started working with them and i mean it's it's a world-renowned hospital and people come for uh, care there from all over the place and you know a lot of them don't have any connections here obviously so the Ronald McDonald house houses them they cook dinner for them they help with transportation to and from the hospital um, it's just an amazing organization so um, like just one example last year uh, one of the families that we met um, I don't know if you remember but it was a little boy I think it was about six but they were from Afghanistan and they had just escaped leaving the country I think the boy was about six and he was shot, came through um, at the back and through his cheek. So he had a big scar on his cheek and so they barely made it out of their country. And the little boy got shot. They were here for six months. You know, they got no family, no money, nothing. You know, they were fleeing their country um, and staying at the Ronald McDonald house. And that kid was tickled pink that day i don't even remember yeah, we got some I, I, him I didn't and, know what had happened to him I, I knew yeah they they were they were only here for about six months um and he was shot uh pretty bad in the face and so he was uh you know luckily he was doing he was well um uh didn't i think he would maybe lost an eye or something not that that yeah. matters but you know it just they were you know could you imagine going to a different country where you have no friends no family no money fleeing you know whatever life that they your had kid, there your kid just gets shot and so yeah but just you know seeing how happy that kid was you know we gave him trash bags he was filling them up with toys and the mom you know we gave her all kinds of stuff that she took back to the room because you know they had nothing but just seeing those kids being able to forget about what they had going on just in that moment is you know what it's all about and it makes all the work and the stress leading up to it and the logistics it makes it all worth it and then you know you you meet families like that and then you go back into the reality and you got people complaining about the the dumbest shit and it's just like it, it humbles you man it really it really does i agree i mean just be grateful that we're here and it, it's so cool that you're doing it because people will sit there and complain about irrelevant things not thinking that hey you know my life could be much worse i could be fleeing afghanistan uh you know and, and have a child that's getting shot can you imagine this your six-year-old son getting shot 
when yeah. you're leaving your country and now you're going to the United States, their English wasn't that great, you know? Yeah. They're, they're still learning. Uh, they don't really know much. They obviously don't have any money. I just think, I mean, and the fact that you were able to, to provide, you know, a sense of entertainment and relief and, and just give the kid a smile because this kid was ecstatic. I, I, rem- I know exactly who you're talking yeah, there, about. Yeah, you got, there's a good picture of him yeah. picking, picking through the sleigh. Um, and he was just tickled pink. And that, and there's the thing that was just one night yeah. that we went there. And I'm like, the Ronald McDonald house has people and families in these situations year round and, and, um, from all over. And, you know, and you can, you know, people listening, you can, you can donate to them directly. They also offer, you know, they always looking for people to cook dinner. You know, you can, you can donate your time helping cook dinner at the house for the families. And it's like, like I said, that was one night that we were there and X amount of families that we met. And, you know, it's year round. There's just constantly families in and out staying there um, in these situations. And um, like I said, it's just really humbling after we leave there. I agree. I mean, it, it's incredible. And uh, how does, you might not know this, but I, I'm going to ask anyway. Do you know how, like, these families get qualified or get found through the Ronald McDonald House? Do they contact the Ronald McDonald House? How does that work? I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I do know, I don't know how many Ronald McDonald Houses there are, but there's a good amount of them at around the country, and they're all located right next to, like, major hospitals. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they have, like, qualifications where you know yet you know it, depending on your situation in order to stay there i don't think they do yeah. um but like i said part of what we donate you know the room for the year we have two rooms there's about a five thousand dollar donation per room and we donate 10 grand each year and it covers two rooms and uh, so the families that are staying there i think they're asked to pay like a, a small fee uh-huh. um but most of them can't yeah. and so you know, it's kind of covers the cost for all that. So people that don't have the money to, to be able to pay the, whatever the fee is, uh, it's, you know, and they're staying in these rooms because their kids are getting treatment for cancer, other various yeah. ailments, injuries. Yeah. So essentially, you know, it's like a home away from home. So it's not just the room. Um, if you've got to tour of the inside, they have, you know, the kitchen, they cook dinner for them every night, but they have, you know, they have a library, they have a playground, they have, you know, pretty much, whatever they have to make it feel like they're at home yeah it's 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 really nice in there i mean it it looks to, on the outside to me it looks like a little white house or like a mini mansion yeah and i would have really homey yeah i got getting a tour in there was really cool you know they have a movie theater like they have a movie room so they, you know they can watch movies um i got got a little bit of everything there so to take the kids minds off of yeah stuff. yeah because they're straight up living there yeah, some of those, you know, some families are there for a couple of weeks at a time. Yeah. Um, you know, talking to some of the staff there, some of those people are there for months at a time, even up to a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, come and go. Some people have been there more than once, but you know, a couple of those, sometimes they're they're there for six, seven, eight months. You yeah. know, living there because whatever the situation is, if it's an accident or rare disease, but it requires them to be there at the hospital getting treatment. So some people are there for a really long time. Yeah, you know, and some of the other stuff we donate aside of the toys is, you know, they take household items like toiletry items, you know, toothpaste, toothbrushes, you know, stuff like that, just, you know, disposables like that for the families to use. So, you know, they don't have to go buy the basics. Yeah. 
Amazing, amazing. Uh, thanks so much for for doing all that, Rocco. I mean, it's incredible. It really is touching. It really is a a great charity. Uh, it's amazing. So uh, thank you. Yeah, and it's fun. You know, it, it people like to participate not only because they're doing good, but it it's got a fun spin to it. You get to dress up and ride around on a motorcycle and do do good charity work. So it's a good mix. Do you have the date of the actual event when we're going to the Ron McDonald's? Um, I'm pretty certain it's the 15th, Friday, December 15th. Um, we try to go that Friday because a lot of the families, they're there during the week, and then they'll go home for the weekend and come back. So we catch them on Friday before some of the families leave Stay for the here. weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and the next Friday is a little bit too close to Christmas, so we're doing it the uh, 15th this year. Okay. Um that's amazing. Donate, donate, donate. If you can afford it, please donate. This is Motorcycle Santa. I want to uh, switch it up now. Speaking of 5Ks, you did a triathlon. I did. A couple years ago. A couple of them. And you didn't <laughs> just do a triathlon just like a regular person. There was a strong reason why you wanted to do the triathlon because something that had happened to you. Do you want to go into that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. what, first of all, I guess, build up what happened. You have bones, leg operations, all these different things going on. What, what is it? Uh, I guess start from the beginning, beginning. Um, I guess it was right around the time I started, Chad. It was like 2015, 2016. Um, I just started getting a weird pain in my right knee for about a year and it was just getting worse and worse um couldn't get it figured out you know uh pt and we, you know i just i didn't really pay that much attention to it because i'm like it's just a sore knee you know i was really active and i just kind of ignored it and then um i finally got an mri done by a doctor local to here and uh he was diagnosed me with avascular necrosis pretty much you know it um i had dead bone in my knee He's like, your bone's dying for whatever reason. And I, I honestly, at the time, I didn't think much of it. I'm like, all right, well, you know, what's the solution? And, you know, he said, we can try this where they drill little holes in the dead bone. It'll revascularize and, and regrow. So I just, I didn't pay much mind to it. I'm like, whatever, I need knee surgery. I got some dead cartilage or bone in my knee. Um, so I had a surgery where he went in and drilled tiny holes in the dead bone, tried to get it to revascularize and six to eight months later it, nothing changed uh so he went in and, and did the same surgery but but uh it's called accufill it's like a cement material where he filled the holes in with that and i had the, both of their surgeries within a year and nothing got better i still had pain in my knee so i'm like all right two surgeries later um and then i just kind of dealt with it for a while and then it started getting worse and then I started feeling it in my other knee. And then I started feeling it in my hips. So then I was like, all right, something's going on. And that's when I went up to Penn and found a really good doctor up there. And the doctor I had down here was great. He was just straight up, you know, I said, hey, I've never dealt with this. No one in my practice has dealt with this. We're going to try a couple surgeries. And then when they didn't work, he said, hey, I, I recommend you, you going elsewhere. Um, somebody who has some expertise and background because we can't you know honestly give you a direction on it so i went up to penn got mris done of everything and i had it in 
all four of my my joints, pretty much my bone was dying due to a lack of blood supply and they couldn't really figure out why. And that was kind of when it all hit me like, all right, this is. So you, you just weren't taking it that seriously. You're like, okay, we're going to fix it. This can't be that. I mean, cause how old were you when you found this out? Um, it was, uh, 20 mid twenties. I actually, no, I'm, I was like 27, 28. So you were just late twenties. Hey, I just, I just, you know, I got some knee pain. I, uh, you know, they're going to fix me up real quick. They drill holes. I mean, the sound of getting holes drilled into my knee was, sounds terrible, to be honest. Yeah. And were they hoping that bone would just regrow? So they drill it and then your bone would just grow back? In, Essentially, yeah. And, yeah. And, it would revascularize the area. Type stuff in there? Yes. Yeah. That was, uh, the cement was kind of just hold it up, I guess, buy me time. Uh-huh. Um, like I said, I really wasn't paying much attention to it back then because I, you know, I was like, knee surgery, I'll heal up, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I got that appointment at Penn, and that's when it was like, it all hit me. I was like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then I started researching into it and, and seeing, you know, so rare. And I found a group on Facebook. Um, and then I was just talking to people from all around the world that had it. And, you know, these people, you know, most of them get total joint replacements. You know, they're disabled. They're, you know, wheelchairs walking with crutches because their bones dying. And I'm like, oh, man, this is just uh, this is Seriously? more than just more than just a knee injury. Yeah. Is it isolated to just your knee? Um, just your joints. Um, so it's like the hard to reach. You know, the very corners of your joints where you have your cartilage, there's some hard to reach areas where the blood doesn't always get to because the, the blood vessels, like the veins are much more smaller. So it's harder to get blood there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the main, it can occur anywhere. You know, people get it in the jaw, you can get it all over, but it's mainly your hips and your knees, your fib, tib, and, you know, the ball of your uh, hips mm-hmm. is where most people get it at. And so after, so you find out, hey, fuck i i you know this is serious you know it's not healing up what do you do next so it i whenever people ask me about this it's i try to simplify it but it it's uh kind of complicated because i had very scientific no no just the the, yeah well it is but the the sequence so that was avascular necrosis and then i also had i don't know if you and i've ever talked about thoracic outlet syndrome I don't know what that is. So that's, I know it, I, I could talk for hours on it, but so pretty much it, it was another condition where your top rib and your collarbone, you have a vein and artery and a band of nerves that travel through. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's right here. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was like early twenties, like I think it was tw- 22. Um, so I to kind of backtrack before that. Um, Cause it's kind of important, I guess. Um, I was in the military at the time. Um, I was actually signed up for a deployment and I was like a month away from activating for training to go off, uh, on a deployment. And I just, I had this numbness in my arm and this tingling, it was going on for a while. And I kept seeing back doctors and they're like, no, your spine's fine. No nerves are compressed. Like, and I just, same deal. I was ignoring it. And this was before the knee thing, but I kind of, it's kind of important. Um, so then I saw a vascular doctor who did a test and saw that my vein was completely closed. Like I, the blood flow was completely blocked off in my arm. And they're like, we need to decompress that immediately because you're at risk to get a blood clot. And so. And you did that while you were in the Marine? This was while I was in the military. So I got yanked from the deployment and they're like, you need to get surgery right away. So like two weeks later, I had surgery where they went in and they 
cut the rib out. You can see the one scar there, and then I have one there. So where they took the top rib out to open up the area um, to decompress it. Um, but I dealt with it for so long uh, that it stayed compressed. And then they had to do another surgery where they went in and with a catheter and ballooned the vein open and restored blood flow. So that lasted for like a couple months. Everything was good to go. And then you had full mobility on your shoulder and all that. After yeah. Af afterwards. Yeah. Everything felt good. And the numbness went away, the tingling. I'm like, all right, you know, I'm fixed. And then later on that year, it happened on the other side. So they went in and they did the same thing. So within a year I had two ribs removed and the angioplasty, which is when they restored, you know, open up the vein. And I ended up getting discharged from the military medically because I was out for so long. I mean, and yeah, yeah. So they're like, you know, we're medically discharging you. Um, so that so that plays a mental and emotional toll on you. Yeah. So I had those surgeries all within a year. There's three of them total. Um, so I'm like, all right, that was a weird year. That was a nightmare. I'm out of the military now. I had two ribs taken out. You know, I'm good to go now. Like, what's the next step? And then, then the reason I mention all that is because when my knee and my hip stuff started, uh -huh. um, I started getting symptoms again uh, with the TOS. Okay. So I actually had um, the doctor went back in and he took more rib out and more scar tissue. I got that big scar there. Is from that one. So um, when it came back the second time, it was the same time that my hips and my knees were getting diagnosed. So it was like a huge whirlwind where my vascular doctor was like, hey, your veins closed. We got to go back in and take more rib out. And then this doctor was like, hey, your bone's dying. We need to fix this. Or you're going to need total joint replacement. So I was like, that's when it all like hit me like, holy shit. Like I got a lot of shit going on. And that's that. That's what kind of started, you know, the downhill trend. You're in your 20s and you're here. In my 20s, yeah. yeah. So, you know. You're um, bartending. Yeah. So I'm like literally having to pick. I'm like, which surgery is more important? Which one do I get done? So, you know, I had the rib removal done again. Um, and then later in the year I went and I had. Um, so up to, up to that point, I had four surgeries on this. I already had two on my knee. And the worst had just started to come as when he said it's in your hips and your other knee. And, and that's, that's when things just really started getting bad. Jesus. I mean that the emotional and mental toll that would take on a person. And let me ask this real quick. So because you got the medical discharge from the Marines, do they, do you still get, do you get medical insurance from them? Cause I mean, this no. has to add up. I know. I, um, expensive. That's another rabbit hole, but the they they didn't do the paperwork right when they discharged me, and I didn't really realize it at the time because you know I was young and I was worried about what was going on. So I'm just they're like sign here, sign here. Um, so the way I was discharged, I don't think was handled the right way um, because I didn't, you know, they no medical, nothing like that. No, so. But that's a different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't have to go. I just, just curious because yeah, it's gotta add up. Yeah, no, it, it it did. Yeah, it. Um, and, and if you're a bartender, I mean, I don't. I mean, do you? You're probably offered insurance, but most young people are like, need that shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. I was, you know, and bartending was. I was fortunate because it was the only gig I could have where like I could work for a few months, and then I was down for surgery, and then they would take me back and let okay. me work, save some money up. Um, 
but pretty much I don't want to get too off track, you know, talk about the triathlon. So I'm in like my late twenties. I already had, you know, the three surgeries up here, two on my knee. And then I go to Penn and, you know, he's like, it's on both of your knees and it's on both of your hips. Um, so that's when I had, um, you know, the big surgeries with like the stem cells and the cadaver bone. Um, I don't know. You want to go into detail? Yeah, yeah. So or, you, you did like, what's that? Like a bone marrow? Yeah. So, um, my right knee, pretty much what he went in. My right knee was is the worst. Pretty much at Ohio? Not yet. This okay. is, I'm still at Penn. So at this point, you know, I'm in, I'm in constant, constant pain all day. I wake up in the morning. I ibuprofen next to my bed. I eat four or five of them, wait 20 minutes, get up. Let's get, you know, literally I'm, I'm limping, you know, people were making fun of me because I had a limp. And they had no idea what the hell was going on. Yeah. And I was just in pain 24-7, like throbbing, my knees throbbing, my hips throbbing, you know, taking away my mobility. You know, I'm behind the bar. I literally, you know, if you look at videos like from the, that time period and just me walking and like playing around, like I'm just limping. So by the time I found this doctor at Penn, um, who's phenomenal. I just happened to be, you know, 30 minutes south of Penn and they had a specialist there who had tons of experience with it. Um, so by the time I got to him, my right knee was like collapsed. Like the femur, corner of my femur was just a huge cavity of dead bone. And so that's why I was walking so bad with the limp. So he went in and pretty much cut out the whole section of dead bone. Instead of drilling the holes, he cut the whole section out matched it with a cadaver plug from cadaver bone um and he said it was if it was any bigger he would have had to do a, a knee replacement but it was just the right size where he was able to cut a plug from the cadaver bone plug that into where the dead bone was on the bottom of my femur and i was really bow-legged um and which contributed to it um and so they did an osteotomy where they pretty much cut a wedge in your fibia straighten your leg out and then resecure it with anchors so he did all that in one shot and pretty much cut my leg it was like a 20 inch incision uh -huh. and did all that in one shot um and then i healed up from that and then i went back probably six to eight months later um to do the hips and he did both hips at the same time and pretty much what he did there is he went in and he took uh, bone marrow out of my iliac crest. I don't think I'm saying that right, but took stem cells out and drilled holes into my, um, into my hip, my, um, the balls of my hip, kind of like what the original doctor did on my knee, but he took the stem cells and all the holes that he drilled, he injected the stem cells into the dead area. So it's actually kind of cool. You can see on my MRIs, the dead bone, and then six, eight, 10, and 12 months after when they did imaging, you can see the bone start to regrow. Oh, the, and no, the, it did, it did. Yeah, it, re, it not only stopped the progression, but it regrew some of the cartilage and healed up all the areas of dead bone. Um, and he did both of those at the same time. And then, you know, I think six to eight months later, this is when I went to Cleveland. So that doctor ended up going out to Cleveland, to the Cleveland Clinic, um, and so my right knee, uh, pretty much the same surgeries, but I had to fly out to Cleveland and have him do that. Um, and then I, Matt Place ended up driving me back. Can I so, pause real quick? Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is they had to literally cut off part of your bone and then replace it with another person's bone, a, 
a cadaver bone and put it into your bone, hoping that it's going to all merge together? Essentially, now? yes. Yeah, there was, you know, he said there's a risk that the, the bone doesn't take. And you reject your, um, your body could reject it. So, you know, they kept a really close eye on that. Do they have painkiller? Like, because I've heard there's not really much painkiller you could do for that type of. And that that's the thing is the, it's, it, it's like a whole different kind of pain. Like dead bone is different from any other pain I've ever felt because it's just, it's your, your skeleton. It's the, your structure, your entire body. And when it's dying and dead, uh, it's just a, it's a terrible throbbing pain. And the, the, uh, post-surgery was rough. It was, uh, it was really, really painful and it sucked. Terrible. It was, it was, it was terrible. How so, long were you down for? Um, the biggest one was the cadaver bone one. I mean that I wasn't walking for, you know, I was on crutches, I think up to six months. Did you have um, somebody like taking care of it? Like yeah. And so, like I said, it, it really wreaked havoc on my life because I was living in Pike Creek at the time. Um, I had to move back in with my parents cause I had my dog, you know, I had nobody to take care of the dog. I had to walk the dog. I needed a caretaker essentially. Yeah, for so, you know, I'm in my mid late twenties moving back in with my parents, mm-hmm. you know, all of my friends are, you know, out buying houses and starting families and yeah. moving on with their life and you're getting serious surgery and, and yeah. Yeah. And, um, so luckily, you know, I have a really, really good family. We're all really close. You know, my sisters, my mom, my dad, um, took care of me pretty much, you know, helped me every day with my rehab, you know, you know, getting up, moving around, put my shoes on, take care of the dog. So I'm fortunate that I had, you know, I have a great family that was a great support system for me to, to lean on. Cause I don't know what I would have done otherwise. And so you get all of that done. You get all these surgeries. I don't know how many surgeries. Just, that was a lot of surgeries. Yeah. It was like nine or 10, I think up to that point. And, and so you're starting to heal and, you're like, you know what? This could happen again. I want, I'm going to fucking run a triathlon. Is that? Kind of what yeah. So, you know, pretty much, you know, I had these two really rare diseases that just happen to happen at the same time. And it's just, you know, and they, and they don't know what caused it. Now the only red flag with the AVN, when they did my blood, I had really high inflammation in my blood. Like my triglycerides were high okay. and, um, you know, they thought I had like a blood disorder. Um, uh, nothing in particular though, you know, it, it's just was a bad luck of the draw essentially. And I just happened to have both of these conditions happen at the same time. And it was just, you know, I was just dealt a bad hand essentially, you know, nothing you can do about it. So, so it's no one's fault. It's just, no, yeah, it's just, happened. yep. And like the, the thoracic outlet was just a structural thing. They're like, Hey, you're top ribs they could have had calcium deposits on them or they grow a little bit bigger than they should have and just the way your body was structured that space was a lot more narrow than it should have been and then as you got older um it just started to impinge on the blood vessels and it's just you know nothing you can do really so at that point you know it was like three or four years where i just you know surgery heal up work for a couple months schedule another surgery heal up work for a couple of months you know, three years in a row when we did the charity ride, like I had surgery scheduled right after the ride. So we do the ride end of December and then I went and had surgery and then I would recover in the winter months and going into the springtime, I would be healed up and then I'd bartend on the beach, save some money up, Santa, surgery. So it was like that pattern for three or four years. So by the end of it, I was so frustrated and 
pissed off and angry. I was just like, why me? Yeah. Like I felt like I got robbed of the vital years of my twenties. So for, yeah. Yeah. So for the first time, you know, in a few years, I'm like, I don't have any surgery schedules. Cause every time I went into a surgery, I knew like, all right, I'm going to get this one done, heal up work. And then next year I'll get this one done, you know, and for the first time, I was like, I don't have anything on the horizon. If I heal up good, like I kind of have a clean slate for a while, what are you going to do? And so I was literally sitting in my room at my parents on my laptop, just looking stuff up. And I came across a three minute video on YouTube of an Ironman. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit, this is badass. 2.4 mile swim. I couldn't swim. It was a 112 mile bike. I'd never ridden a road bike before. And then a marathon at the end. I'm like, I used to be a runner, so I'm like, I, the running I'm good with. And um, I just started looking them up, and then I was thinking about it for a while and thinking about it and then looking it up. And then I was in the pool doing rehab on my knee after one of the surgeries. And so let me try swimming. And I was like, I swam a little bit, and then I just kept thinking about it. And then I literally was like, you know what, fuck it. I was like, I have surgery December of 2018. And there's an Ironman in, in um, where was it at? I'm sorry, Temp- Tempe, Arizona, November the following year. So 11 months later. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to sign up. And I surgery in December. Like I should be walking within three months, you know, January, February, March. I was like, I could, I could probably start training like the bike maybe and swim. I really didn't know. I just signed up and, and uh, just went at it. <laughs> so you, you were you weren't sure if you were gonna I complete had, your PT. You weren't sure if you're gonna be able. First of all, swimming that much—that's a lot of fucking swimming. But the biking, 112 miles—that's a lot of biking. And the running alone is di- 26 miles. You know, after, that's, that's yeah. a lot. And, and and you got nine surgeries. Yeah, and it was it was less than a year after my last knee surgery. So I remember talking to my surgeon. I'm like, hey, like realistically, he's like, well, you'll be on crutches for about three months. Um, he goes, after that, you could probably start doing the elliptical, lightweight bearing. He goes, and stationary bike, um, swimming, you know, you, you can you can do that fine. And so I, it's kind of what I did. I had it end of, end of December 2018, and then January, February, March, I rehab. And then um, April is when I guess I started, you know, training. So I really only had April, May, June, July, August, like seven months to train incredible and i had zero experience i'd never where was a swimmer to swim at? Where uh at dfit right okay. down here um so i i uh hired a trainer down the beach a triathlon trainer bruce clayton uh very very bruce. bruce is the man he uh i actually met with him the day after i got off crutches i'm like i'm gonna meet this guy i have zero triathlon experience not only do I want to do a triathlon, but I want to do the hardest and the longest. I want to do a full Ironman. And I just had surgery a couple months ago, and he has no idea any of this. I'm like, so if I show up on crutches, he's going to laugh at me. So I scheduled to meet him the day after I got off crutches so I could actually walk to see him. And we met, and I pretty much, you know, he said, to be honest with you, he goes, uh, beginning, I was like, you know, I need a full year with a normal, healthy person with triathlon experience to get ready for this race. This guy has no experience. He just had surgery and he's only got seven months. And he goes, you know, in the beginning, he goes, I would have said no way. He goes, but after talking to you and just seeing you were just set on doing it, he goes, I'm 
I, I think he could do it. And yeah. so he really, really helped me because I had no experience. I knew nothing about anything. And he was a world of knowledge and, and helped me train and prepare for it. And, uh, so I started with him in, in April. <laughs> what was, uh, the hardest part of your training, I guess you could say. So, I mean, the swim, that's very difficult because I feel like for me personally, it would be the run, but you're saying you thought that would be the easiest for you. I would have, I thought that because it was the only thing I had experience in. I was like, you know, I had run Delaware marathon before. So I had run I a marathon. Did the, did a, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we did the Delaware marathon. So I ran a marathon before, but like I never swam and I've never ridden a road bike. Like I, yeah. I just, um, for a fucking 112 miles. Yeah, yeah. I didn't care. My, you know, one of the biggest quotes I read was when your why is strong enough, the how becomes easy. Right. And I just, I, my why was I could have done anything and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. And so that's, how I started, I, I would go on the stationary bike. I started with pedaling on that. Um, and then I would do the elliptical and I did a few laps in the pool. And I just, after a few weeks and my doctor was like, all right, you can do some weight bearing, get on the treadmill. So then I, you know, I went to light jogging on the treadmill. Um, and then I eventually bought a road bike and then we started getting some miles in on that and just slowly every week, just adding a little bit, add a little bit and going to PT and just kind of took my time going into it. And then, um, I just, uh, that summer I just trained my ass off and got real strict with my diet, you know, cut out drinking, no beer and nothing. And was real strict with my diet and just went to town and just busted my ass and, uh, got it done <laughs> yeah i mean it's incredible and the where did you do the biking i mean did, uh the did canal you actually do uh so during your training i mean did you actually do 112 miles like during like one day the like, longest oh, God, 112 no miles the longest thing? i did was was 100 okay it was 100 um it's pretty much i did all my swimming at d fit because the you know they have a pool there um all and what's the, the time for that real quick wait what like, do you have to be under a certain amount of time? To yeah, practice? there's, um, I think you have two hours and 20 minutes for the swim time. Okay. I what's, think, a, what's considered a fast time? A fat, I mean, some of, some of these like, professional uh, athletes are doing it in 50 minutes, okay. swimming 2.4 miles. Uh, decent average time is, you know, like maybe an hour, 20, hour and a half. Um, and then you have a total of two two hours and twenty minutes, I think, to get it all done. Okay. And then you go from the swim to the bike. That's yeah. You transition into the bike. Um, I think you have like seven or eight hours for the bike, okay. um, but you have a um, thing on your uh, on your ankle, so your individual time is being tracked. So you know, if you finish the swim an hour early, that buys you an hour on the bike. Um, if you get the swim and the bike done early, that buys you more time on the run. So it's the whole thing. So it's the whole okay. thing. Cumulatively, you have 17 hours. Okay. But um, you each course has its individual time. But the overall thing, you have 17 hours total. And real quick, uh, when you're swimming, did anybody like... I don't know, pass out or almost drown. They had the same. And like, were you going past? Because it looks crazy in the beginning when everyone's like... Da, 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 da. It's like, are you getting hit? You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That... Uh, I'll never forget that day, that morning, because... You know, to kind of put it in perspective, you know, I, I had all these surgeries, traveling to Cleveland, all back and forth. And, you know, I just going, went through a lot of shit and then I busted my ass training. And that morning of, 
I just remember I'm like, man, I've been through so much shit. And what am I doing? I had no experience and just getting into that water. Like, um, there's thousands, there's, I think 2,500 other people. And I was just like, all right, it all, all these years of all this bullshit and all the hard work I put in, I'm like, it all comes down to today. And I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I said, but I'm going to get in that water. And I'm going to give it my best. And, uh, I just hopped in the water and it was freaking chaos because like you said, it was people grabbing your ankles. You're everybody's swimming at the same time. You're getting hit. You're getting punched. You know, you just can't find your space in there. It looks, and it, it's, it's chaotic. First few hundred yards is absolutely chaotic. Yeah. And so I ended up just kind of going on the outside a little bit and I found my pace and I just, you know, had my sights on the bridge and I just went and just kind of steered away from everybody. Was it a straight shot? Did they make a turn or anything? Yeah, it was a straight shot down and back. Okay. One lap, one big lap. Going parallel to the beach. Uh, so this was in this one was in Arizona and it was uh, in Tempe Lake, which kind of like more of a canal. It's a, it's like a straight shot. Uh -huh. It has a couple foot bridges that go over it. So it was down and back. So it was down at one point one, back one point. And they follow you in boats and stuff, just in case people. Yeah, they got people in kayaks. Um, you know, checking on you, making sure you're okay, and you're allowed to stop. Um, but if you touch the kayaks or hold on, then then they'll, they'll pull you. So you can't have can't have any outside assistance. Trail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's super impressive that you've done this. I mean, it it really is. And so you do the swim. Now you're on the bike. Now, what was the, the hardest part for you? I mean, does your butt hurt? I mean, so I mean, getting out of the swim, me. I'm like, I just remember like your my face is beat red, the adrenaline. And it's like, I didn't know if I was going to finish it or not. So I remember getting out of the swim and just like looking around and I'm like, holy shit. Like I just did that. And, I, and then it started sinking in. I'm like, I, I might pull this off. And I'm like, I'm feeling good. All my friends were there. I had a hell of a support team that came out and, and they're screaming, you know, cheering me on. And I was just like, you know, the swim was my scariest part because it was my weakest. And I'm like, if I can get through that, you know, I'm on land. The rest is just mental. So, you know, transition, you rip your wetsuit off, get on the bike. And then, you know, that's the longest part of the day, you know, 112 miles, no phone, no music. You're just in your head. With that part drive drives me crazy. Like, it's like, they don't let you listen to anything. You can't have no nothing. And, you know, and there's parts in that race where you're with other people, but most of it, you know, it's so long. You're just patches of miles and miles where you're by yourself and you don't, just you know, somebody it. might pass you, you might pass some, somebody, but you're just following the cones and the markers and you're just in your head talking to yourself. And, Stay you know, I got, focused. yeah, I had so much shit from the last, you know, years of my life. I was just sorting through it all, yeah. going through everything. And I just spent you know, seven hours in my own head. <laughs> yeah. Did you get the, uh, I, you know, there's a runner's high, but did you get like a rider's high, like riding your bike? So the, the bike, it's, it's so long that you go in and out where like you go through periods where you feel good and you're like, oh, and then you dip and then you get real slow and then sluggish. And you're like, man, I can't do this. And it's like, oh, I'm only 40 miles in. I still have 60 miles to go. And you just, push through it and you go in and out so it's like a runner's high but then a slump and then you go in and out of that several times and then once you get to like i was at mile like 80 or 90 where i was like all right like i could i might i might do this i might finish this and then i you know the last 10 miles i got a kind of a second wind and and pedaled hard and i and i got done the bike and then i was like all right i just all on foot all i got to do is run like i just run from here and um when you say just run but i mean that's a lot 
Yeah, so I, I uh, my goal on the run, because if you do a good time on a swim and a bike, you can buy yourself enough time where you can walk a good part of it. Um, but at that point, your body's depleted. You got no energy. You're completely shot. You know, you've been doing this for 12 hours and you still have to go for another marathon. So people run, walk, um, and just kind of keep an eye on the time. But my goal was like, I didn't want to walk any of it. So I ran the entire run. And at the very end, mile 25, I remember going into the bathroom, you know, because they got Porter John along the way and I took a piss and I came out of it and I was just, I had nothing. I was just completely depleted. I was like, felt like a, a corpse. And I came out and I started walking a little bit for the first time. I'm like, whatever, like, and you're down to your last mile at that point. And I remember there's this little Italian guy that was kind of running with me at the end. And I was telling him, I'm like, Hey, I don't want to walk. I don't, I got to run the whole thing. It's my goal. And he saw me walking and he yelled at me. He goes, Hey, you got one more mile left. He goes, finish strong. And I was like, shit. And I just started running again. And then, uh, then it all, you know, crossing that finish line still to this day is the best moment of my life. And I can't even put into words how I felt, but, um, coming around that finish line, but it was, uh, it was incredible. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, man, I, 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 saw I, I fucking did it. Like, I mean, it is, you should be proud. I mean, it, it was incredible. It is incredible that you did. I mean, and on top of it with all the surgeries, all, all the other crazy shit that happened to you, uh, to complete a triathlon and with minimal, I mean, I say minimal training, like seven months is really not that much time. Yeah. Like I said, my trainer was like, I usually need a full year of somebody who's healthy and has triathlon experience. But like I said, when your why is strong enough, the how becomes easy. And and your why, what can you tell us your why? Like you're like, what were you telling yourself in your head? Just like all the all the shit I was diagnosed with, and the surgeries, and having to move back in, and, you and prove that you could being knocked that. on my ass. I'm like, I can't help any of that. Like I was dealt a bad hand. Nothing you can do about it. And, you know, people will sit around and moan and complain, and the woe well is me mentality, and and I can't stand that. I'm like, all right can't help what happened to me. What am I going to do about it? Am I going to just cry for attention and woe is me? And like, I can't Feel do this and that. Feel so, exactly. I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to push back. I'm like, all right, got clearance from my doctor. Like at this point you can start slowly easing into it. He goes, it's going to be hard, but it's, you're not going to hurt anything structurally. So I'm like, all right, you know, I'm going to fight back. And it's just a mind game from here. And it was kind of like my, my push back, like getting, punched nonstop so many times i had to come back and just start swinging back and that's kind of was like what that represented to me it was yeah you know. and you did and you did what about your your breathing right so you're talking about it's a lot of it's on your mind right it's, it's a mind game but it's also a lot of physical right your feet i mean anybody who's walked a couple miles sometimes you know your feet hurt you know, so, so how'd you deal with that? Like you, the breathing technique and all that sort of thing. How, what was your breathing technique during the run or, or even the, the, uh, the bike? Uh, to be honest, I didn't really have much of a technique yeah, with, the, go, with the breathing. Yeah. Know, yeah. Breathing. I think the biggest thing was like nutrition. Um, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm mentally strong. I can fight through the pain, but you know, when you're working out for 17 hours, I, I think I burned like 16,000 calories. Oh. I'm like, uh, and you, you, everything's hurting and you're numb. And like I said, you're, you're focused on like you're breathing and, and staying calm and pushing through is the nutrition. Like you have to eat, you have to hydrate and they have aid stations along the way. 
And I remember that's one of the advice they gave me, like, hey, even if you're not hungry or thirsty, you always take something. So, all you know, just bananas, water, uh, electrolytes, and they have aid stations along the way. I was just really focused on staying on top of that because if you start falling behind in your nutrition and you get dehydrated, then you're screwed. And then there's no catching up to it. And that's when, you know, people cramp up, you know, people on the bike just falling over on the side of the road, grabbing their legs, just cramping up because... They didn't stay on top of their hydration. So, Did you uh, honestly, no, it was really, really painful. And I had, my body was destroyed, but I stayed on top of my hydration and, you know, I had like a fanny pack with electrolyte pills and like every well, 40 gel thing. Yeah. The gels. And, you know, I did a lot of prep work and a lot of research and a lot of reading blogs of people that run them and, and kind of, ha- I had a good game plan going into it. You know, every 45 minutes, you know, I had a little packets with the electrolytes and the gels. I'm like, every 45 minutes, I have to take one of these packs to stay on top of my electrolytes. And you know, every aid station, either a banana or uh, and some type of fruit, um, I have to go through X amount of water bottles, you know, every hour. And I just stayed on top of that. And I think that really helped me from cramping and getting any injuries. And the rest is just in, in your head, just pushing it through the pain. Was there anything that you, um, was there like one scenario or a couple scenarios that you kept replaying in your head during the time? Like, was there one thing that you're like, this motherfucker, you know, when you're running, something that kept you angry, right? They say work out angry. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was all my, uh, recoveries from the surgeries. Like it was just, you know, I was just living at my parents. I was in so much pain. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't put my shoes on and I had to, you know, I had to take a piss or use the bathroom. It was a, a hassle. I had to get my crutches and have somebody help me to make sure I didn't slip. And then I had to go in the bathroom. Then I had to wait and it had to help me get back. And I just sat on a couch. I couldn't do anything. And like one of the surgeries, I had this machine where you put your leg in it and four hours a day, every day for like three weeks, I had to put my leg in this machine and it would go. All it would did was contract and your leg and just to keep the joint moving because if it was sat straight, like all the fluid, yeah, it would just kind of lift in my leg to like a certain degrees. And then every day I had to increase it a little bit, but just sitting for four hours a day with my leg in that machine, not being able to do anything. And it was just driving me nuts. Cause you know I me, mean? I'm an active person. I like, I don't like sitting, sitting around and, and just having to go through those rec- yeah, it sucked and it went, and I hated it. And I just was thinking about that the entire time. I'm like how anxious I was at that moment to get off the couch. And I was like, you know, you wait till I heal up, you know, I'm going to get out there. And I just kept thinking about that and thinking about that. And, um, that, was, but we're part of you thinking, you know, this shit could come back and I might never be able to do this again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm going to need lifelong care. Like in my forties, I'll probably, Eventually, I'll probably need total joint replacements um, for the knees, for the knees and the hips, um, because they're still scarring in the bone. You know, they're healed up a bit, but they're they're still scarring. I still have pain. It's nothing to the degree what I was dealing with. Um, Do you get cortisone shots now? I haven't. I was before that though. Um, I just you know try to watch try to watch my diet, which doesn't always uh, happen. But well, you know, when you're in a place that yeah, makes amazing food, exactly. Um, you know, I try to control the inflammation with that, but you know, eventually I'll, I'll, I'll need care probably in my forties. So pretty much going to this doctor was 
buying me time because he was focused on joint preservation whereas everybody else is just like oh we replace you're, you're we're going to replace your joints and like i, I said i was in that facebook group with you know and there's thousands of people from all around the world that have the same thing and most of them are you know they're getting disability they're on crutches and they you know they didn't have the circumstances that i had to get the care from this doctor to save my joints so I was communicating in the group a lot and like, you know, the day of the race, like they were all behind me, like strangers from around the world that I never met. You know, I, I kind of felt like when I went out there to do the race, I represented them as a whole. And I went, wrote a nice message that morning. I'm like, Hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this, but when I jump in that water, I'm kind of doing it collectively for everybody cool. uh, because I was one of the few cases where, you know, I didn't get joint replacements and, I ended up with not only with my mobility, but I was still able to compete as an athlete. So I kind of had them behind my back pushing me through the day. And, you know, when I got done, I was, you know, I had all these messages from them, you know, how it was showing the picture, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, you know, people I've never met. And I still, I'm still in the group and I still touch base and, and talk to them because uh, nine out of 10, you know, 99% of those people aren't going to end up how I did on the better side of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm sure it gives them hope. I mean, even a young guy or someone who's recently diagnosed, they see your story. They're like, you know, there's a chance for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I've sent a lot of people to the doctor, like, Hey, if the battle is fine on the right care. So, you know, I, I've sent a lot of people to this doctor, um, and, and they've gotten a lot of good results from them, you know, just preserving their joint. If you could just buy time, you know, cause if I got my joints replaced in my twenties, I probably would have had to have them redone at least two times because, you know, if you're active, you know, 18 to 20 years. So 20 in my 40s, I probably would have had to have them redone. And then maybe again in my 60s. So, um, I mean, I even think about and I, I don't have nearly the, the shit that you got going, but I just know. But we're at that age where, yeah, two meniscus surgeries and they cut it out. And I just, a month ago, I got a cortisone shot. That's why I asked you about it in my right knee. I've been sold for years. Does it help? The cortisone? Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah, it does help. But it's like, I, I was diagnosed with um, uh, patella tendonitis. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and, and so, it, and he's basically saying, I have arthritis in my knee. Yeah. And it's it's painful, man. Yeah. It, and it's like, it never goes away. So I'm taking the proxen, I'm doing the cold plunge and shit. And I'm like, what the fuck? So do you still have the cartilage in there or do they just cut it out? Uh, or? I probably have about 70% in there still, but eventually it's going to be bone on bone. And we are going to have to get a, uh, a replacement meniscus, which is an option or neat. I'd like to do the stem cell thing. You know, it's going to say, check out um, Dr. Kamath. He does that. And, you know, he does procedures where they take cartilage from cadaver, kind of like he did with the bone with me and replaces it with that. Like his main focus is joint preservation. He treats athletes, professional athletes. Um, pretty much, you know, he does these complicated surgeries that not a lot of people have experience in to try to save your joint and buy you time. So, you know, if you can get another 10 years out of your joint before. So once you replace it, every time you replace it, the integrity of the joint is jeopardized. Yeah. And, and there's the chance because my pup had two knee replacements because the first time they did it, his body rejected it. So then they had to cut him open, take the shit out, do it again. Then they got to cut it again. And I, and you you only get one leg, you yeah. know, so the more often. And it's it, so long of a healing process. Yeah, yeah, man. So if, if you can buy yourself time with the original joint, you know, that's that's the way to go. But, you know, it required, I had to travel a little bit. And it was, uh, you know, tough finding this guy. But, you know, I was fortunate, like I said, that we were 30 minutes south of Penn. You know, had I lived in California, 
I don't know if I would have been able to fly all over here to get these surgeries and then fly so back. He's one of the and, best in the country. Yeah, he yeah he um, has done countless studies on it. He's trained doctors over in Europe to do these procedures because you know they're so tough. If you actually um, listen to one of David Goggins' podcast, the most recent surgery that he had on his knee. Uh, if you uh, have you read his second book, yeah. Uh, where he talks about the osteotomy that he had. Yeah, they cut, and the, they cut a little. That's what I had on both of my legs. Oh, and if you hear him describe, he says, you know, he was about to walk out of the doctor's office, and then the doctor's like, well, there is one like, surgery yeah. and a light bulb. <laughs> and if you remember that part of the book, and he goes back, you know, what is this? And he describes it, and he goes, it's very difficult to do. The results aren't great, you know, but there's a chance. And, you know, Goggins ends up going that route. And that's the same exact surgery that I had on both of my legs. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, high tibial osteotomy (HTO) is what they're called. And and he was talking about how he wants to, he wants to continue to be able to train, and and, and joint preservation. So that was your main focus. That's what yeah, you wanted. exactly. Yeah, you did. You weren't like, uh, fuck it. I'm just going to get a replacement. I'm going to collect disability. Yeah, exactly. Which there's a lot of people. I think most of them do. They don't. You know, I had to pretty much become my own advocate for myself. I had to do a lot of reading, a lot of research. Do you have to sell yourself? Like, because I imagine this doctor's high demand, right? He's probably super expensive because he's a beast. Did you have to, like, get accepted by him? Well, really, um, I was kind of an appealing case to him because, like, oh, you got this guy in his 20s. He's athletic. Um, most people get it in one or two joints. Very rare you have it multifocal, right. which is what I had. I had a bed and, and all four of my weight-bearing joints. So it's rare to find somebody with, with both hips and both knees, let alone somebody younger who's athletic. And so I was kind of appealing to him like, hey, like I'm, I'm a good candidate for you to do these surgeries on. And if you had good results and, you know, which he had great results. And then I did the, you know, the triathlon. And that's why they ended up doing the Cleveland Clinic uh, did a case study that was distributed to like 25,000 oh, yeah, oh, on me God. in particular. Wow. Um, I'll have to send you a link to it, but it, it was sent out to 25,000 physicians and doctors around the world for people to reference. Um, reading about Rocco now. Yeah, and, wow. it, and, it's, and it just describes all the surgeries that he did and the sequence of which he did them and how I healed up. And then it mentions the triathlon. He was able to complete a triathlon one year later. So I kind of was like a, like a, a showcase for him, if, if that makes sense. So cool. That's so cool. Um, you're a model. <laughs> you're, 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 you're a model. You're a, uh, a doctor model, uh, a surgery model. Yeah. <laughs> Probably something most people don't want to be, but Hey, yeah. Yeah. That, that's essentially what it was. And, um, you know, so, um, but did they take your pictures? Are you like in a textbook? So a bunch of no, not my face, but there's pictures of my legs and yeah. from the surgeries. You know, he took pictures of everything, and in the case study, there's pictures of, you know, my legs cut open and what he was doing and describing everything, because it's like I said, it's distributed on this platform, so people all are anyone around the world that's, you know, experienced in this, you know, they're looking for any type of research on it. They could pull that case up, and say, oh, here's a guy in the, in the U.S. This is what happened. This is what he did, and this these were the results. So was that, what's it been, four or five years since that? Um, December 2018 was my last surgery. Okay. So, so, about, so about that, yeah. So do you have to go yearly or by year? Like, are you going to see him for like a check I go once a year. Um, I drive out to Cleveland and he uh, does usually x-rays. 
um, or MRIs, depending, and just kind of does a quick little checkup to make sure everything's holding up right. Uh -huh. And so I do that once a year, usually around March. Okay. Um, I'll drive up there, stay the night, see him in the morning. I'll do x-rays, check me out, and then everything's good to go, and then I, I drive back home. So I'll keep doing that every year, but... They don't, uh, they don't find anything. Yeah, and then, you know, eventually it's they're not going to hold up forever. Like I said, maybe sometime in my 40s, 50s, we really don't know. As of now, I'm doing good. Um, but eventually I'll probably need more care, whether it, you know, starts to, you know, decay more or I get in new areas, but just roll with the punches, you Modern, know, <laughs> I mean, modern size and movement, you know, hopefully they have better treatments in that time. Yeah. Yeah. AI's so, coming. Hey, oh yeah, AI's man. Yep. Figure all this shit out, hopefully <laughs> it's here, man. It's here. Um, so that truly incredible story. I mean, that's uh inspirational. Anybody going through anything i mean you listen to that and you're like I, I need to stop fucking being lazy and making excuses let me get off my ass and do something about this yeah yeah it's it really you know the longer you harp on it you know things that happen you know, that you can't control the longer you harp on it and wonder why it happened why I me mean, you're just wasting time like you can't change it you gotta look forward i'm like all right what am i gonna do about it you know so the quicker you can overcome the fact that like all right this should happen to me you know like all right well what are you gonna do about it you know. I'm sure there's a lot of denial at first. I mean, before we switch top, like, I mean, you had to have heard the news at some point and you had to have gotten some sort of depression, I'm assuming, or, or, or cried or whatever the case might be. What was the thing that made you think, you know what, I can I can beat this shit? Uh, well, it was like a, the initial hit was, you know, it it, it pulled me down hard, man. I, it was like I remember. You know, when he told me it was an all four joints, that's when it sank in and I just, everything drained from me. I'm like, oh shit. Like, like, um, and like I said, when that happened, I had already had two surgeries on my knee. I already had my ribs taken out. Like I thought that was in the past and I'm like, the worst is yet to come. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, so that, that just completely drained me. And then, like I said, just towards the, like the last surgery, like I was just so over it and just, I was just ready to move on. And so right before that, last surgery while well, I was like, all right, I don't have anything scheduled after this one. I actually signed up for it before I even had the surgery. Like it was November and I'm like, I have surgery in December. So I signed up for the race before I even had the last surgery. I actually have a funny, I have a video on my phone when I came out of anesthesia um, and I was just coming to in the bed. I was like, all right, I like made a video. I'm like, all right, now it's time to start training. Like as soon as I came out of that last surgery, I was just focused. I'm like on that. Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> it was literally like that. And that's, that's when things started to shift from, you know, being down in the fucking gutter to like, all right, let's put it in gear and, and, and shoot forward. And, and then I just, I had fun. And I just fucking went. And, um, and during all this, was it before or after you also rode across country on a motorcycle? Yeah, that was um, over two thousand miles. How many miles was that? We, it was fifty-eight or fifty-nine hundred miles in a month. On a motorcycle. On a motorcycle. Yeah, motorcycle? it was a two thousand three Kawasaki Vulcan Nomad. I still have it. It was you and your ex-girlfriend. It was. Yeah, we were both. So it wasn't just you. You didn't. It wasn't just you. All your butt. No, no. We were working down the beach that summer, and I kept saying how I wanted to do this trip, and then. You know, she's like, I'm coming with. So we both finished up our job, summer jobs and uh, and just packed up in the bike and and uh, me, her on the back and fully loaded bike, all the saddlebags, everything. 
and we just hit the road. <laughs> what, what year was this? Uh, this was 2015. 2015. So, yeah, it was. After, so you had a few surgeries. Yeah, I had had my rib surgeries and all that was done, but it was between that and before my knee stuff started. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I I watched your journey the whole time. And uh, I was like, holy fucking shit. I mean, I'm just thinking about like, my butt hurts. You know, he's just dropping. Yeah. It looks like you're exposed to the elements. Oh, I love it, man. And then your girl's it, on the back. You know, it, yeah. She and didn't it, drive, right? You no, no. Back. She just enjoyed the ride. Was, uh... <laughs> Did you ever um, get a flat tire during that time or anything? No, no flat tire. Um, ran into a hailstorm. That was really scary. Because yeah, you got nowhere to hide. Right? You're, if you go down like the south and the Midwest, like Texas, Arizona, like the roads there, you see signs where it says next gas station, 80 miles. It's just nothing but open road and field. And there's just, there's nothing. Uh -huh. So, and you can see the storms coming across. And I actually have a pretty good video of it. Us, you know, we see the cloud coming. And then I start seeing cars pulled over with their four ways on. And it was probably people that knew what was about to happen. I'm like, what are these idiots doing? And we just kept riding. And then the hail started to come. I'm like, so I started to slow down. And then it got to a point where we had to pull over, got off the bike. And I had my leather jacket. I had to take my jacket and cover us because the hail was just like hitting. We had, it looked like paintball welts. Yeah, it was, and it was, it was scary. I was like, holy shit. What, what that, state was this in? That was in New Mexico. Okay. Um, just coming through a wide open road. So that was that was a really scary call. Concussion from that shit. Yeah, yeah, it was. Did you keep the helmet on? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And just buckled down. And then five minutes later, it was going and it passed. And then it was sunny out. And like the weather out there is insane. But got to see the country, man. Like whether it's a bike or car, like I can't recommend that enough. It's just you got to drive across the country. Where did you? Where was your farthest you went west coast? So we went all the way out to the Grand Canyon. And by that point, I needed maintenance on my bike. Like I needed uh, tires. My clutch was starting to go. Like, So we stopped in Vegas, um, dropped the bike off at a shop, and then got a rental car and drove from there out to like the west coast. While they're fixing While they're fixing a bike. And then I think spent like two or three days and then came back. Bike was good to go. Repacked you everything like up. Leave like ah, oh, car. Yeah, 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 yeah. I went into Death Valley and all that stuff, and then um, back on a bike, and then that's when the weather started getting cold. So we just kind of went up north, and and so went down, over, up, and back. Did you did you sleep in random hotels each time? With the, how'd that work? Yeah, we like the Grand Canyon camped out. I like, had all my camping gear. Um, I had a couple friends along the way in Texas to stay with, but other than that, it was literally cheap, cheap hotels. Like this before Airbnb, I think was invented, wasn't it? Maybe it was kind of right around the time because my buddy was starting to Airbnb as a room that we stayed at, um, staying at cheap, literally riding for the day, see as far as we could go, stop. Nice little crack hotels. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah, there were some really, really shady ones that we stayed at. It was, you know, it was like thirteen bucks a night. I'm like, oh great, we just need to sleep, take a shower, and then it's like prostitutes and drugs everywhere i'm like man we should have spent the extra 30 bucks and stayed at a comfort hey, something. yeah 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 and especially out in those midwest towns and there's <laughs> roads where there's nothing for miles and you stop at the nearest motel it's like where are these people coming from and what are they doing here but that's uh yeah all part of the experience though man it's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious um, oh was... so you're when you're riding i mean uh do you guys get in uh 
any disputes with anybody else? I mean, during that time? Not really. No, it was it was a it was Running a good trip. Man. Biker guy, no man, didn't. Uh, there's a lot of other bikers on the road. Um, got to the Grand Canyon was really cool because there's people from all over, you know, the country that are traveling there and just talking to people. They're like, "Oh, you're from Delaware? You rode all the way out here." Yeah. So that, that was pretty cool. But uh, a lot of it was just open road, man, because the country is huge. A lot of people don't realize it unless you've driven across it. I mean, it's massive. So when you're riding or driving, a lot of that's just wide open highway and land. And then you just come through these big cities. And, um, you know, we stopped in like Charlotte, um, North Carolina and like uh, Nashville and a couple of the major cities along the way. But outside of that, it's just you know, hundred, four or 500 miles of just open road. I mean, Texas alone. Oh, you did, you did go through Texas. Yeah, we went through, yeah, we went down and then across. Texas alone took the longest because it's just wide open. There's so many people who live in Texas who are like, I've never been out of Texas because it's fucking huge. It's huge. I actually had to do that twice. I drove, that's a whole other story. I don't think I told you that when I had to ground the plane coming back from Mexico last year and I had to drive back. No, uh, that might be a separate podcast, but, okay. but uh, I had to do it twice. <laughs> what drive through Texas? Yeah. Yeah. Last year I did, I did it in a car by myself because I was on a commercial flight and I almost died on the, <laughs> on, on the plane. So long, long, if I guess we can talk yeah, about that. Well, I was in Cabo last September and for a bachelor party and the last day we all went scuba diving. Cabo's beautiful by the way. Yeah. And it's, I love it there. Um, and flying back, you're supposed to wait like 18 to 24 hours to fly. And uh, ours was 29 hours. So it was outside of the uh, time frame. Depression? Yeah, it was the nitrogen. So when you go down, you get nitrogen in your blood. And you need time for those bubbles to for your body to burn off and for them to dissipate. Yeah. And um, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I learned a lot. And so we're on the flight. Um, and once we get up to like 25,000 feet, I started feeling weird. So I said to the lady next to me, I'm like, I don't feel right. And then, you know, we get to elevation and my body went numb. I, I felt like I was paralyzed. I couldn't feel my lips. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then I grabbed the flight and I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but like something's up. And then, you know, it was like a scene out of a movie. Like, is there a doctor on the plane? And there was, and the doctor comes up and, he starts checking me he goes, you're not doing too good. And then they checked my blood oxygen and it was like 78 or 79. Like it was below 80. And he's like, this should be like 94 or something. And it's like, this isn't good. Like what the hell's going on? So then um, it just got worse from there. I got lightheaded and like I, I, I was like struggling to maintain consciousness. And then, you know, that's when they realized like, oh, he might be having decompression sickness, which is one you still have nitrogen in your blood uh -huh. and the nitrogen will travel around. It'll go to your spinal cord and affect your, your cognitive, you know, ability, which is what I was experiencing. Like I couldn't talk and my lips went numb Jeez. and you know, it, the worst case scenario is like you can die from it cause you can get it, um, an air aneurysm. Like the nitrogen bubbles can go to your brain and you have an aneurysm and then you're dead. So uh, it got so bad. They had me lay down on the plane feet in the air oxygen on and the doctor's with me and he was on the phone with a doctor on the ground they're like you got to land that plane now because yeah. it's not good and so they did an emergency landing right over the border into el paso texas um and, you know and there's an ambulance waiting for me and i you know they rushed me off the plane got on an ambulance they took me to the hospital 
and they had a decompression chamber, which is what, you know, why they took me to that hospital. And by the time I got to the hospital, my symptoms starting to get better. So I didn't end up having to go into the chamber, but you know, everybody curse you out when you get, when you get to the, yeah. So all my friends got rerouted to a different flight and it goes, everybody was so pissed. They're like, you know, let him fucking die. Let him fucking die. <laughs> yeah. They thought I was just like drunk so from Cabo and, um, and then, you know, when I was at the hospital and they were describing like, no, you have decompression sickness. Like, when did you did scuba dive? Any of the other dudes? And no, and two of my other friends that did it with me were on the same flight. And they're like, everybody's different. And your body, you just, you didn't burn off all the nitrogen. And I was like, it was 29 hours after. And they're like, you should spend at least three days. And I kept getting different information. Some people... You know, the guy in Cabo said, you know, 24 hours. And then I'm thinking about it. I'm like the random local in Cabo. I was like, oh, yeah, 24 hours. Get on my boat. Let's go scuba diving. Yeah. And the nurse at the hot. the arch? You, right around that area. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. It was that right along that, that, that wall. Yeah. Um, so then when I landed, I was like, they're like, you can't fly for like three days. Like, you need to wait this out. And so I was like, I have to get back to work. So I rented a car and I literally drove from like right at the border at mexico el paso back to the united states by myself 30 hours i did 10 day 10 hours a day for three days Fuck. it was fucking terrible jesus dude. christ dude i mean just i know you, and you probably felt bad because you got to ground the plane and shit you probably feel like an asshole and you're like i don't fucking know what's going on yeah yeah but uh, at the but time I'm, I didn't, gl- I'm glad you did yeah because i don't know what would have happened yeah. you know would it have gotten worse could i died i don't fucking know but so my <laughs> wife and I went to Cabo in 2012 after I graduated okay. a, a school, and like as a celebration, I finished the college or whatever, right? And so when you get to Cabo, it's beautiful, but we didn't stay at an all-inclusive resort because it was it was open. It was like where that uh, that pier is, if you know where that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You can walk around. Everyone tries to sell you shit. Yeah, yeah. Farmers market. They sell you a scuba diving thing, which is what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, so I we bought the scuba diving thing. We got the excursion. Here's oh, nice. What they, here's what they did. Right. So we go out there. We're like, I'm gonna fucking scuba dive. I was in the navy. You know, I did some training. Yeah. And uh, and so I so we got me, my wife. It's the like six of us. Here, here's the training they give you. It's about 45 minutes of this guy where English is his second language. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it is. So he's trying to communicate to us how to uh, decompress. You go down, you go, yeah. You know, and so it's exactly they, what it sounds they put like. All the tank, they put the tanks on you. You got the goggles on. You get the wetsuit, the, the fins, yep. everything. One of the guys that was in our group didn't know how to swim but his theory was well i'll have an oxygen tank and a mask so i'll just move my legs and i'm just going to be guiding around but i don't really need to know how to swim because i have oxygen being fed to me so Brittany and i are moving down because we held like this chain right you're going down and you wait and you let it decompress so you didn't know this guy no he was just part of the group just okay. a random dude on vacation by himself i guess or something and and, and so we're, we're working our way down and they show you all the hand signals you do while you're down there and stuff and it's it looks clear above water, but the further you get down, the more brown it gets. Yeah. Uh, uh, right. And, and it's hard to see. And there's some good thing. There's like a videographer there and I'm having a great time. I'm moving down there. I got a good seal on my mask. We're moving around. I see Brittany. She's there. We're moving. This guy is then starts grabbing Brittany. Like, cause he's oh, like, the worst thing to do is to panic down there, man, dude. And then, and then, but then 
I'm like, okay, we're good. We keep moving a little bit more and we're, and I'm trying to like find fish and shit. And then, uh, I turn around and Brittany's gone. I'm like, where the fuck did my wife go? And, and the guy, when he was panicking, like broke the seal on her mask. So she can't see. She's the, the thing's filling up. So she has to like get Holy emergency shot up there. And so I'm, I'm still there. I'm like, yeah, she's with the guy. I thought she was with the guy. So I stayed down there for like another 10 minutes hanging out. I come up and she's like. <laughs> oh my God, so that is. Like, man, me. Like, I, like I, yeah. I didn't know <laughs> yeah, what was going on. When you're down there, you don't, you can't hear. It's all hand signals. So you're kind of oblivious if there's an emergency or something. She's like, I'll never, I'll never scoop a dive again. <laughs> yeah. never. We got the one picture to show her that. And now I'm like. So that was, I mean, that's fucking 10 years ago now. But it's like, uh, we got, I was like, what if we train in a pool? She's like, no. No. Like, she... train in, in, in a pool. But it's like, dude, I can't believe they let people, which is fine. But, you know, you get like 45 minutes to an hour of this guy just kind of going over it. Yeah. It's not like here in the United States. I mean, I got OSHA and everybody else like overseeing all the safety procedures. That's exactly. Yeah. But, uh, dude, that's scary, especially you know, if you have to rush you up to the top, well, you know, yeah. and like, I'm going up there. She's like, act like blah, 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 when I get yeah, up there, but it, but it was, it was serious. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry. It was serious. <laughs> it was serious. But it's just like, Jesus, it's, it's crazy. But I had, I didn't even think about the whole decompression and the, all the chemicals and, and everything. Cause we flew, I guess I flew, I don't know, maybe two days later or three days. I don't know, but I didn't have anything. Yeah. I guess everybody's different. I, one of the guys I dove with, um, is a underwater welder. So he was, um, a professional, I mean, he was certified so scuba. He so he knew, so I felt safer going with him than the instructor because there was a couple things. I don't remember what in particular that the instructor said, and he pulled us aside. I was like, yo, that guy's full of shit. Like, don't do this. Listen to me. Stay with me. And it, he's an underwater welder. He had been doing he does it. it all the time. Yeah. And um, so I'm like, I'm listening to him. Yeah. So he was the one, you know, I was picking his brain about the decompression sickness and he was explaining. He goes, That's why you want to wait to fly, blah, blah, blah. And then we all went up in the plane together and I was the only one that it happened to. I guess luck of the draw. I don't know. But I'm glad you were able but, to land and, and all that stuff, even though, you know. Feel like it's yeah, so now I can check off grinding a commercial flight with 300 passengers off my list. That's that is that's fucking crazy. I mean, like, so when you're when you're laying, you said you're like laying in the aisle on the floor, where people like, like literally. No, it was like a scene out of a movie. Like I remember the one guy was sitting there and he was like rubbing my chest and patting me like, "Yeah, Yo, you're gonna be," you know. In the moment, it was scary, and then like once we landed, you know, and I got off the plane, you know, people clapped and whatnot, and I just. The biggest part, I didn't know what was going on because, you know, all this information I know about decompression sickness and the nitrogen, and I didn't know it then. Like, I had no clue. You know, we're leaving Cabo from a bachelor party. No so I, I don't know what's going on right. the whole time and, until I get to, you know, you know the hospital. And then they're like, you know, it's decompression sickness. And I was like, oh, shit. And then I fig then I read about it. And now I know all this information about it. I'm like, oh, God, like. That was uh, that was bad. <laughs> is it similar to you know how they say they bring um, fish up? I don't know if you know, but they bring deep sea fish up. They're supposedly it's pushing outward, like they'll explode. No, I'm not too familiar with that. Is yeah. that uh, like that are because the pressure's so the... uh, intense down you know in the deep deep part of the ocean that when they come up, it's still pushing out, and there's not and much there's no pressure there. And oh, that's crazy. Yeah. No, I gotta read about that. Um, another 
thing that you're doing. I mean, aside from all this other crazy shit, you also are training as a helicopter pilot. Yes. Yeah, I am. Um, Why did that start? I've one of my biggest goals. I always, uh, I want like a cabin in the mountains. I love the outdoors. I love, you know, I was in Boy Scouts growing up. I just love being outside, the serenity of just kind of being detached. You know, I'm a social person, but I love just being outside. And I've always wanted property up in the mountains, like a cabin in the woods. And like, I always wanted to be so secluded where like, I'm like, I got to fly a helicopter to get there. Um, so it's something I always thought about. And then, uh, I was riding my bike on the canal, uh, right by the bridge and there's a helicopter, you know, that kept flying over it. And I'm like looking at it, looking at it. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, let me, uh, like this, the, the thought of having a helicopter was always like, I'm like, that's something when I'm older, like it's down the line. But I was like, well, when I get to the point, if I can ever buy a helicopter, um, I need to know how to fly it. So I'm like, let me uh, just look into it. And so um, Horizon Helicopters right in Newark, Delaware. It's two miles from the from my deli. South of Horizon. Yeah, South of Horizon. Um, I called them up and I was just, you know, getting some information. And I always thought it was just, you know, crazy long and hard and expensive. And the owner is a veteran. It turns out, he, you know, he gives a... Um, discounted rate for first responders and veterans and so i was like all right you know this might be feasible and then i got some information on it and they do it like a discovery flight where you go up and you fly for an hour um and just see if it's something you want to do and i had been in a helicopter before on like a uh, grand canyon tour but uh that was years ago um it was one on the motorcycle trip we did it so it was been a while so I went up on the Discovery flight and I just fell in love with it. I'm like, this is fucking awesome. Just the freedom, the independence. You know, you're flying over the traffic, looking at people driving to work and I'm just like... Suckers. The, yeah, suckers. I'm like, the ability to go anywhere. So I fell in love with it and I was just, you know, like, how often do I have to go? So now I go once a week. Um, I don't, I, I'd, I'd say maybe I'm a quarter of the way there. I have about 21 hours logged. You need 40. And that's you actually moving? That's with a certified flight instructor. So the way it works is they, you have a set of controls and my instructor has a set of controls. Wow. And that's how you learn, you know, you start doing things on your own and he just kind of mirrors you. And then when you start making mistakes, he corrects it. And then you both have the control so you can feel what the corrections are. Um, and you know, he'll wait till I, you know, let you make the mistakes so that you see what you did wrong. So you always have him in control. So you're not going to crash, you know? Um, but you go up, I go up at, at once a week. Um, have you did the actual takeoff part yet? So the point I'm at now, um, um, I'm pretty decent, like hovering, like I, I can keep it at a decent hover. Um, but flying like horizons right in Newark and we train at the summit airport. Once we get um, up past like the power lines and stuff, I pretty much take it from there. Um, you know, as far as navigating, going in, calling the radio controls, going into the pattern, uh, coming in for the landing. Um, so now uh, the basics of it, I guess, you know. Are you studying a manual at the same time? Yeah. So every other Saturday, there's a four hours of class time that we go to. 
Because, you know, in addition to knowing how to actually fly, there's, there's like the, all this wind stuff. There's a, there's a written test. You got to know about aerodynamics, aerodynamics. You got to know about the rules and regulations and the FAA. And then there's a lot of, a lot of groundwork and, and studying to do for the written exam in addition to being actually being able to sit down and actually fly it. Yeah. So, um, but, but I, I love it. And like I said, I'm at the point now where, I'm navigating most of it and I'm, I'm just getting like the more technical stuff down. I come in and for landings and slowing down and, and hovering and um, getting into the more technical part. But I got about 21 hours so far. And how many do you need to fly by yourself? Uh, well, the minimum uh, to get your private license is 40. Most people, it takes at least 50, sometimes 60. But the, you know, the minimum for the FAA is 40. So, and then what you take the written test as well. So then you take, um, you know, with your instructor, you do some solos by yourself. You do engine failures, you do all that stuff with your instructor. And then once he knows you're good to go, then you do a check ride where the FAA pilot comes out and you pretty much do a check ride with them and they go through everything from start to finish. And then if you pass your check ride, then you do the written. And then you pass the check ride and the written, then you get your private pilot's license. Wow. Wow. So that's I'm so shooting cool. for like, I'm hoping by next summer I should have it, hopefully. That's so cool. Uh, so, I, so It's cool. awesome, man. So then. Um, Malin's going to do air delivery? We could potentially, man. Yeah. You drop it anywhere you want, man. <laughs> um, have, have you had anybody else besides the co-pilot in there with you? Um, no, no, just, just the instructor. Um, just doing the instructor. Do you think your, uh, your dad would go up with you? you I've asked them. I asked my mom and dad, my sisters, they all say yes, but we'll see when the time comes. Um, because once I get my license, um, I can pretty much rent the helicopter there. Um, how how much does it cost to rent a helicopter? Honestly, I don't know. Um, for like the day, I really don't know if I would like if I had my private license and I just went to rent it from them because you got to pay, you know, fuel insurance. I, I, it's not cheap. Um, probably, I don't know, 1500 bucks maybe for a, okay. a rough idea. I could be way off on that. Yeah. Um, Do you have plans of, I don't know, also doing that for money at some point? As of now, I don't. Okay. Um, you see how it goes. Yeah, like I like right now, my goal is I just when I get to a point where I have you know a cabin in the woods, blah, blah blah. I just want to have a little personal helicopter that I can ride around and explore. And um, you know, if the apocalypse apocalypse comes, do you want to start a doomsday prep community? I do actually. Yes, <laughs> that's uh, with a moat and alligators. With a moat, alligators, and a helicopter. Um, so I'm kind of thinking ahead of time too. If shit hits the fan. One of those big wooden wooden wheels that. Uh, Curates our water. I, I've always wondered one of those, actually. As, what are they called? I forget. Like, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I've always wondered one of those. Yeah. Where it, uh, You pretty much can run all your power off I'm of all thing. about creating underground bunkers and then having places above it as well. My, my idea is like to... Because I've, I've, I've joked about this, but like, you know, Anton's up in Vermont. Right? Yes. So it's real secluded. But if you can get a night like by like 10 more like a hundred acres and then you just, but it has access to water because eventually the valleys, because I, I always think either up in um, uh, Pennsylvania, you get in those rivers, eventually you can get to the Delaware river and then from Delaware river to the ocean. Right. Yeah. So, so cause, I- cause you want some type of 
escape route if you absolutely have to. Yeah, you need a water source and an escape route. Yeah. But uh, it would be cool. It would be cool. Yeah, by kind of heads in that direction, too. It would be cool to have a helicopter there, too. Like, hey, we're out of yeah. supplies. we got to go to that mountainside over there to pick up, you know, it's whatever just it you can. You know how to do it. You know what I mean? It's like in an emergency situation, you can you can fly a fucking helicopter. Honestly, when I first started it, somebody asked me, like, why are you training to get your helicopter license? And my answer was, I said, if I'm ever in an emergency situation where my life and the lives of the group I'm with depends on being able to fly a helicopter. Yeah. I want to be that one guy who knows how to do it. It's like, Oh shit, we got to get out of here. There's a helicopter, but the pilot's dead. Like anybody know how to fly a helicopter? I'm going to say I do. And then I'm going to, that was, and that was, yeah, <laughs> actually I, uh, I do too. And they're going to be like, no, and I kind of, when I first started, I was like, I'm not going to tell anybody this. And I'm just going to one day just like make a joke. Like, Hey, you know, I'll pick you up in a helicopter and then just do it. And like, oh, wait, what the fuck? You know how to fly a helicopter and just not tell anybody, but I guess the secret's out. <laughs> yeah, well, you should. I mean, it's cool. It's, it's very cool. Oh, it's awesome. I, I love it, man. It's Do you my like favorite the guy part you Yeah, his name's BJ. He's awesome, man. He's uh, he's very patient. He's uh, he's a fantastic instructor, man. He's He's got a lot of patience because, you know, I struggle with, you know, a lot of stuff with it. And he's just lets me make my own mistakes and then lets me correct them. And then says, Hey, you know, what, what should you have done there? He's, he's, uh, I can't say enough good things about him. Do you do a simulator first? Like a simulator thing? Like you sit in like a, like a VR type thing? No, no, nope. It's, it's all, you know, like I said, he has a set of controls and I do too. So like, you know, he just, we're not, you're not going to crash. So if you start making a mistake and it's things start going awry, which it what happens, you know, he grabs it, gets it back into control it's like, hey, you were. Get off little... it, boy! It's my yeah, turn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's hard, man. It's because you're using both of your feet. You're using your left hand, your right hand, and your eyes, and just everything at once. It's and it's. Do you it's, have to have perfect it, vision to, to qualify for this? Um, I don't know about perfect vision, but you, if you can't have any um, contacts, or any nice. contacts, I think you can have, but you can't have any, you know, deficiencies with. Okay with your site and whatnot, you know, because you have to go get a whole medical where they check it for everything. And if there's a red flag, they'll say, Hey, like, you know, you, you're not going to get medical because your ears or your eyes are bad, but, um, you don't need perfect vision. I don't think. Okay. And are, do you pay, I'm, I'm not going to ask the cost, uh, cause maybe horizon has a deal for everybody, but do you pay like a package deal? Is that what you say? I'm, I need 40 hours and pay for 40 hours. Or do you just pay by? Per no, it's, it's an hourly rate. And, it's incorporates um the instructing you know the fuel the insurance but it also um what kind of differentiates them from other places is a lot of other places you're just, you're just paying and they're just going by the numbers like you get 40 hours and then you got to take the written test and that's kind of all on your own these guys like i said every other saturday there's a four-hour class with uh with an instructor who's been flying for 50 years so he's a world of knowledge and um, it's just hands on, you know, if you got any questions, you just, you know, they, they teach you everything. And a lot of the places don't offer like, you know, they're, you're kind of on your own. Like you got to study this book and pass the written where, you know, that's included in all of that. And some places you got to pay extra for like fuel and insurance where with him, it's like one flat thing and it co covers all that it covers the classes and it's kind of, kind of all inclusive and they're just a top notch, you know, facility that guys are awesome there man you're interested in becoming and it's right in our backyard you know horizon 
Right in your backyard, you know, it's right over by Cooch's Bridge. Okay. You never see the helicopter taking off yeah. from there, so. What's um, the little, you know, there's the tail and then the other, uh, f- like, fan thing that spins behind it. What's that? With the. the you know how uh, there's the the propeller here, but don't some. The rotor. Is that what it does? Is that how you can go like that? Oh, oh yeah. So the rotor, so the tail uh, is what the pedals control. Okay. Um And. That pretty much turns you left and right. So basically, the feet turn you left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, the cyclic um, is the stick in the middle. Okay. That kind of goes the direction that turns the rotor like, the like this. Yeah. Okay. And then the cyclic is on your left hand, and that pretty much takes you up and down. So the cyclic is up and down. Um, the feet are you know turning, spinning the helicopter. So if you're hovering, you push the left pedal, and it'll turn the helicopter around like that. If you want to go up, you pull the cyclic up and then you'll take off and then um you know the stick in the middle you're going directional what's the but it's all at once <laughs> minimum uh height like you're supposed to be at like Should we FFA? we fly uh we get to like a thousand feet 1200 feet when we go down to the airport flying over the houses in the neighborhoods you gotta be at least 500 feet okay um so as long as you're above 500 feet driving over like residential or like a beach or something like that you're good, but you know we we stick around twelve hundred feet when we're going from horizon down to uh, summit. Very cool. I want to. I know I, I've talked to you about this offline. So when I was uh, when I was like eleven or twelve years old, I lived I lived in Villa Belmont, right? <laughs> and so I would go. I I would. Go, and this is before I before I met you, before I knew you even existed. And my friends and I, we would walk to Malin's market and at that time you know i didn't have any money i'm like 12 years old yeah i would i would go into Malin's and i would open up the bottle caps and i would try and get a free mountain dew and i was going <laughs> <laughs> i was going i was opening i would open like five six at a time and then find one and then i'd buy that one for a dollar or whatever um and then but i did this repetitively and the people saw me on camera and the the, one, the next time i came in he was like, hey, come here. I know what you're doing. He's like, why do you keep opening my soda cast? I was like, that wasn't me. He's like, I got you on camera. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he said, I saw you. I know what you were doing. Stop doing it. Never called the cops. Never said you're not allowed back here anymore. Never. You know, he was really nice. Just gave me the warning. And I continued to go, you know, for the rest of my life till, till now. And it turns out it was your dad. Yeah, yeah. That's... So that was really cool. I ne- I never forgot that. And your dad owns Malin's Market, right? Your dad and your uncles. Yes, yeah. And all that sort of thing. And even and later, when I was fourteen, I got in trouble for um, I stole fire extinguishers. Okay, and I had to... like repetitively, or was it one no, thing? No, one thing. So you have like they, a they... fetish where you collected them in your trunk, <laughs> like. My so behind my friend uh my friend Dan's house, they were building this this structure, and we were like, what the fuck is over there? And um, so we were 14, so we are skipping, I was skipping wrestling and, and practice and stuff, and he was. And we went over there, and another friend and I, not Dan, but he was like, he told me, I heard fire extinguishers could freeze things. But they, so we took these fire extinguishers, we broke into the building, we took these fire extinguishers. Allegedly. Alle- <laughs> Oh, we did. I'm just keeping it covered. You never know. Yeah. yeah Statue of limitations. I, we don't know. I took the fire extinguishers. Um, 
and we sprayed them around. They followed us through the woods. They're still constructing this building. It's like a four-story building. And the owners of the building watched us go through the woods. It's like a half mile back to his house. And so we're spraying them. They don't freeze things. They eliminate the oxygen is what they do. But the, the owners follow us back to his house. And we're sitting there. <laughs> like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, all scared. And he's like, come with me. And we're like, oh, oh, oh. and so they take my friend and I back to this building and they're like, uh, we're going to call your parents. We're like, okay, but what do you think happened? He's like, they got to make an example of us. So they call the cops. And so I get hit with like this trespassing charge and like minor theft bullshit. And so one of the things that I had to do was I had to uh, go to this back on track program and I also had to do community service. And I did a lot of the community service at the Delaware Food Bank, but another part was at Maryland's Market. Your dad allowed me to do some community service. I didn't service. know that. Yeah, yeah. I knew, so the, that was I knew really the soda helpful. store, but I never knew that. Yeah, right. yeah. So he let me do some of my community. Yeah, I think I had 60 or 100 hours of community service. I had to do. So I thought that was really cool. No shit, I, I was very grateful for that because then the, the food bank, man, they work you there. Yeah. <laughs> what did he have you do? Sweeping? Sweeping, yeah. uh, um, moving like the the expired stuff, you know, and he called it, what do you call it? Front facing. The stuff yeah. 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 You got to make sure the shelves, everything products yeah, rotated and the labels are facing out. But I was really grateful for that because the other times my mom would had to go drop me off. It was like a whole inconvenience, but there I could just walk. You could just walk. Yeah. yeah get and, your hours. Yeah. And, and, and he's so talking about his free labor. So he's probably tickled pink too. Yeah, he just signed <laughs> off, you know, he did this. And so that I always thought that was really cool. But I'm very grateful for that. And so now you're not bartending. You're at Malin's. What's going on? Yeah. So um, my my dad, my uncles are retired now. Uh, me and my buddy Kevin bought everything over from him about, about last year. I've been working there for at least three or four years now, but officially owners as of last year. So Congrats. my dad and thank you. My dad, my uncles are retired, but they're still there working you know like i had to call my uncle this morning because they're we, legends around there. we were sure if you haven't been to Malin's, uh, his uncle his dad they're legends over there everybody knows them they've been going there for 20 30 years yeah we're one of the few places you know local family-owned places still around because everything now is all cookie cutter franchise you know corporations buying up all the little guys so we're you know, fuck Wawa. Yes. <laughs> There's one going up right down the street, but, uh, I saw they're not making the drive. through Yes. Yeah, so originally the, the Boston market right there was going to be a drive through only. And then across the street was the full service where the friendlies is. And I guess they nixed the drive through, but they're still doing the full service. So, well, so there's not going to be anything at Boston market. No. Um, they nixed the drive through idea. That doesn't go to say they might try to put like, you know a store with pumps there or i don't know if they own the land i don't know what something's going to come of it because yeah. it's you know it's a prime spot and it's been vacant for a while but just the drive-through idea they next it for whatever reason um i don't know if people complain because of the traffic you know um because that highway's busy as hell as it is so having you know there's a line out to dunkin donuts drive through the backs up on 896 so maybe that had concerns with it but they're still dangerous. It's a legit, like it caused accidents. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, you know, and there's no shoulder on the highway yeah. and it's, you're right between 95 and you day. So you get all that it's traffic. It's an off ramp. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the huge, you know, job they're doing now that uh, project we putting the flyovers and the on and off ramps. Yeah. Like, um, so I don't know what their plan is now, but, um, they still have one going up across the street. 
I don't, I don't think you're going to lose any business. I mean, if you want real good food, the best subs, the best breakfast sandwich, you're going to go to Maryland's. Wawa is for convenience, but the real people know if they want a real meal, they're going to go to, they're going to go to Maryland's. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we got quality reputation. Um, the Who biggest, started it? Who started it? Uh, so my grandfather back in 74, he worked for different, um, he was a meat manager for several grocery stores and, um so in 74 um they all pitched in threw their money together uh bought uh, it was a grocery store stafford's bought the store sold the house in wilmington moved um there's nine kids so it was a family of 11 uh, six boys three girls and then my grandparents they all moved Baby in boomers. yeah oh yeah man uh they all moved in a little apartment up there there's two bedroom apartment on top of the store wait how many people lived up there? 11 oh uh grandparents in one room the, the girls and three girls in one room and the six boys lived up in the attic mm-hmm. and then um uh, he was a butcher so it was like a grocery store meat market type deal and then up until he retired i think in the early 90s and so once he retired, that's when they kind of got rid of the uh, butcher side of it, and they started doing sandwiches, and then kind of went 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 from there. Since uh, early nineties, I'd say. Wow, and what what was that building next? Because there used to be a building right next to it for years. Yeah, so it disappeared. Yeah, it was actually a sandwich shop, um, and like a year or two after my uncle and my dad, they started doing sandwiches. Um, he packed up shop and left and there's a uh didn't tell nobody just put a sign on the door it says go on fishing and never showed up and moved packed up and moved to florida and there's a actually a funny picture because it's my dad and my uncle they're standing in front of that store kind of going like you know where'd he go yeah. and there's a sign that says go on fishing and just packed up and left and then that was it and then uh the gas station uh, bought it, and knocked it down, and that's why it's been vacant ever since. So, there's the gas station actually on that property? Yeah, it's the same realty company that owns uh, both gas stations on both sides of us. They should so, give it to you. They should give you that. Space well, they sell it to you. They were trying to buy buy our building before we were, you know, me and Kevin bought the business over. Uh, Never came. They were aggressively, yeah, and um, because they were going, they wanted to knock it down, and then they'd own that whole corner and build like a big, okay. super center, um, like a um, dash in is their version of it, I guess is what it was. Um, so it would have been another example of you know the big guy coming and buying up all these little stop, Holy little drama. mom and pop stops. So you know, it's a if you haven't been to Malins, it is a legit mom and pop shop. You go in there. Uh, your dad know. I mean, at least when he was actively working there, every he knew my He's name. Still there. He knew my order. Yeah, yeah, they still do. You know, first name basis. A lot of people order. You know, get that. They take handwritten orders. I mean, they, they'll we're, on the, we're on the POS system now. Okay, it, just, it got years, it, was, it got too busy. My uncle's the one that uh, made this. That was a tough switch, and that's kind of a lot of like the issues that I'm dealing with is kind of keeping up with the pace of the business but you know without keeping the nostalgia of it but switching from pen and paper to computer was like a huge jump you know teaching these you know the girls how to do it and it was just you know it's a big change people go from pen and paper to seeing a you know a pad with a screen but it just it got it got so busy it was so it's tough to keep track of all the orders and then you got the hot and the cold and the fry so you know you got to split the tickets and just writing it and taping them together it was 
it was, you know, it got messy. So when he implemented the uh, POS system, it just streamlined everything a little bit. A bit. So it's better. Yeah, that and you can keep track of your sales. You can see what's selling, what's not selling, inventory. Like it's, it's really is a no-brainer. You really got to make that step to really be able to progress and move forward because, um, it's just pen and papers is not it. Yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. It's cool. It's nostalgic, but um, if you want to keep up with the pace of things, you got to kind of, you know, grow with the times a bit. Um, That's good. You guys adapted. How many employees do you roughly work there? Now we're up to about 20, 18, 18 to 20. That's, that's yeah, there used to be a time back in the day when it was all just like my dad, my uncles, and my aunt, where they were sitting on the back on milk crates and be smoking a cigarette. Somebody walked through the door, they hear the bell ring, and they'd get up, wash their hands, go make a sandwich, cash them out, and they leave, and then they'd go back and sit back down. Um, now you guys are doing a sh you make I mean you get orders from University of Delaware. Yeah, the the location's huge. Being right next to UD, I mean we've got a great relationship with the school, football team, field hockey, softball, soccer, baseball. You know we cater those guys. You know like tomorrow morning the football team's on the road, and I think we have like 140 subs that they need done and on the bus by 10 a.m. the same sub or? Uh, they mix them up. I think there's, there's like 50 Italian, 30 turkey, 30 ham. Um, when you do that, let me ask something real quick. When you do that many orders, I assume you're making it probably the day before, right? No, we do it. We do it the morning of. And do, do you do one giant piece of bread and then cut them up? No, it's all individual rolls. So the rolls will get their... Uh, tomorrow morning, I think we have them coming at 4.30, right home. right from the bakery. Who's and, your baker? Excuse me. Uh, Lissio's. Okay. Um, we use all Lissio's rolls. And um, so rolls will get there 4.35. The girls will come in 4.35 and start that order and get it get it done before we open at, at 7, have it in the cooler. Cause, two hours? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's that's uh, like a little procession line, you know. So cutting the rolls, you, fixing them, wrapping them. Is it, is it, okay, so is it like somebody moves down? We'll do side? like, you know, we'll line up 10 rolls. One person will do the, throw the meats on. Somebody will put the lettuce, tomato, you know, pop, pop, pop. And then 10 are done. And then somebody's taking those 10, cut, wrap, cut, wrap, cut, wrap. And while they're doing that, we'll line up another 10 rolls and do another 10. So it's like a little assembly line. So cool, man. Because um, then once we open at 7, um, it's you know for breakfast. full swing and Friday breakfast. It's the busiest day of the week. So it just you rolls. Know, cheese from Maryland is delicious. <laughs> delicious. So tomorrow's uh tomorrow's a long one. <laughs> yeah. What, what time do you usually get there? Uh, in the morning, you know, we open at seven. Uh, usually five thirty six. Okay. I like to get there, get all my orders done for the day before we open up. Um, and Kevin and I rotate. So, you know, the days that I'm not opening up, I'll go in at either 11 or two and then I'll close and then you're up to 10, but some days, you know, open to close, you're there five, 6 AM till 10, 11 o'clock at night. So it's, it's around the clock. It's keeps you on the toes for sure. But it's um, a good problem. Man. It's yeah. It's, all it's, yeah, it's, it could be not like that. Yeah, yeah. I remember talking to one guy at the register. He said, Hey, I did business consulting for 40 years. And the common theme is one of two problems. Either you have problems from not enough business or you have problems from too much business. And guys, you guys have the latter of the two and that's the better problem to have. So yeah. that's what I always, you know. I really hope they would give you that piece of property. 
Because I know we've talked. You want a bigger parking lot? Yeah, yeah. the parking would be huge because yeah. we do a lot. A lot of the construction guys, um, and they're driving trucks and trailers. Yeah. So sometimes they'll park across the street at the McDonald's and walk across, yeah. or they'll park in the gas station next door. And, I do that myself. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, it would be awesome. I'll, I'll buy gas. Oh yeah, yeah. That's what it'd be. You know, watch in the morning. They park over to get gas. Come over, get food from us, and then get their gas, and then and then they leave. Um, but having an extra space or even having some gas pumps would be pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hope you're able to somehow convince them or something like that. Yeah. I got, a, I got some ideas. Yeah. <laughs> you put the ice cream window in the, the, the little, yeah, like, that's, that's, yeah. New, that's a new addition for, you know, late night stuff, uh, um, for picking up. Cause we close at eight and a lot of people don't get there till like eight 30. So we can lock the door and then start cleaning up and then we got the late night window people can come pick their order up buy stuff get ice cream chips whatever they need and then we can keep the door locked um are you closed on sunday still closed on sunday yeah, yeah it's something yeah. they my uncle and dad did uh probably chick-fil-a five, style yeah essentially yeah you know you, you need a day of rest you yeah, gotta you know everybody. the girls bust their ass and yeah. you know they they need a breather and it's only time to get anything done if there's maintenance or anything to be done uh you need a little peace and quiet yeah. um so that's probably going to stay that way for a while <laughs> i know like the the barbecue limestone barbecue is closed on are they place. yeah because they got to clean out yeah it. yeah and everybody's like well with football i'm like yeah we would do well with football on sundays but you know like i'm saying you, well enough that it's you're willing to keep it like that. Yeah, yeah. You you need that day in between. You need the day of rest. Give everybody a little breather. Does Maryland even do marketing like that? I mean, it's just so well known. No, no, we really don't. We don't have much. There's no marketing or advertisement. And it's just, you know, that's the one thing you can't buy is reputation. Yeah. And, you know, all the time and the work that my uncles and my dad put in over the years, you know, takes time to build that up. And you, you can't. You can't buy that. Um, so, What's it like working with them? Oh, I love, it's great. It, it's awesome. You know, when I started working there years back, you know, spent a lot of time with my dad because growing up he was always working. So it's been cool working with him and my uncles and just learned a lot. At, and it's uh, it's fun because we all kind of have the same sense of humor. We all have similar personalities, you know, hardworking, but, you know, good sense of humor. And um, we kind of vibe everybody. It's a, it's good energy in the store all the time for the any, most part. Any fights, any family fights? Um, me, not me, but I'm sure they butted heads over, over the years. Close quarters for hours. On yeah. Oh yeah. You, there's due to be fights and then there's drama and there's a lot of, you know, bullshit here and there, but you know, that's, I tell, you know, when you do, but at the end of the day, you just got to resolve it. And it's like and, any business. Right? Yeah. Yeah. How many family members total actually work there? Well, now, I mean, back in the day, it was, you know, when my grandfather first bought it, it was him, my grandparents, and, you know, there's an old article that they wrote in the paper, and my grandfather says, I don't have to hire any outside labor because all my kids. So it was all family. It was my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, and then, you know, my dad and two uncles were the only ones that, you know, had an interest in keeping it as a career, and they're the ones that ended up taking things over. And then, you know, my uncle's wives worked there over the years, like my Aunt Barb, Aunt Stephanie, um, cousins here and there. So at one point it was mostly family. Then as we got busier doing sandwiches, you know, had to hire um, outside help. And now now we're at the point where it's uh, it's me, um, my dad's still there, my both of my uncles to some degree. 
Jim. Jim. So, uh, yeah, he does most of my delivery. So it's great because. And your uncle's names? Uh, Kenny and Bobby. So then they're still there um, to a degree, yeah. but um, kind of helping out when we need them and um, a couple of days a week. Because you, when you retire, you need something yeah, to stay yeah. busy, you know. For years. Yeah, exactly. But now they have the freedom. You know, they want to take off, take a trip or vacation. They can do it, you know, if they want to cut back more days. and Cut on their own schedule, you know. When, when they want to work, we can use them. They don't want to work, you know. They got the option to, to do whatever. Um, and it's good that you guys have employees and, and family members that you trust because there's a lot of small businesses. They don't go on vacation. They don't do. They don't take days off. If they do, the business shuts down. Yeah. They're not. They're afraid that basically they don't trust them to shake yeah. the on when they're not. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. They'll just close the door and then until they come back and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you guys would lose a lot of money that way. Yeah, we it's there's too many moving parts to that place to to, to close down. Um, yeah, so we've been doing like on the holidays when when it's a Monday holiday, we've been closing Monday and Tuesday. Okay. So we have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So what's something Kevin and I have been doing since we took over because it gives the girls a nice three day break because it's you know Sundays are good, but you know they have families too. They need to spend time with their family and they're. What's that? I'm not mad at you. Let yeah, me. and you know they're grateful for it. Like Memorial Day weekend, you got Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, so yeah. go to the beach with your family, and they all have kids. You know they, um, and usually after the holiday, it's it's slow. Like the day or two after the holiday, it's usually slow in there anyway. So it's good time to do it, and you you know you got to take care of the employees too. You got to yeah. throw them a bone when you can. That's good leadership. Yeah, um, and and they appreciate it and they enjoy it. So are you willing to? Um... Are you willing to share any ideas you have for the future of Maryland's? Or is that is all top secret? Um, I, I would say top secret, but the first year is under our belt, and that it was a, you know, it was a tough transition. I mean, because there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot to learn, there's a lot, lot that we assumed, and like my uncle and my dad did a good job at, you know, kind of tapering. You know, they spent the time. A lot of places they sell. You know, to sell the business and then they just pack up, turn around and, and leave uh -huh. with no guidance. Um, and I was fortunate where they kind of stuck around and made sure we were successful and kind of eased the way out. So now that's kind of been the last year. So now that we have that year on our belt and, you know, they're pretty much, you know, phased out. Um, it sounds bad saying it like that, but you know, we're on, you know, we don't need the training wheels essentially. Yeah. Um, but it was also cool how they did that. You know, they, they made that transition because obviously they care about the business. They want you to be successful. Cause like you said, a lot of people just, they cut ties and done. Yeah. Yeah. I've just talked to a guy. I don't want to mention the name of it. Um, but same deal. He had a business for 25 years and he sold it. And the new owners, he tried helping to transition. And even the employees there, he said, the girls, you know, don't do this. And they, they came in hot and, and they just switched everything up, changed this, changed that. And he tried like, hey, like, don't do this. Like, don't do that. Like, uh, and they didn't listen. And then after 25 years in business, they shut down within a year. Jeez, that would, that would piss me off. You got, yeah. That would piss me off. Yeah. So, that, you know, now that we have that year under our belt, um, now we can start kind of looking forward to you know what we want to do in the future so still nothing solidified yet but that's now we can turn and focus on uh what's ahead of us now good and, and congrats on the business and uh you know i, I rave about mailings all the time the show must go on we just had 49 years so next yeah. next august is 
50 years so um it's, it's i mean it's a big milestone yeah, big huge milestone it's like i said there's not that not that many spots anymore out there everything's yeah. you know you drive around everything's bought up the properties are knocked down and it's just building huge cookie cutter super centers yeah yeah oh, yeah oh, man we got mailings yeah <laughs> fuck exactly. subway uh, fuck wawa damn yeah <laughs> Rocco didn't say that. I said no. See, I, I just, I'd say nothing. <laughs> uh, Rocco, thank you for coming in. If you want to donate, Motorcycle Santa, the five k is the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Yes, yeah, Saturday the twenty fifth. Um, go on the website. You can sign up right there. MotorcycleSanta.com. Dot org. Dot org. Yes, sir. Dot org. We'll pop that up. We'll put the link. It's going to be a great time. Petting zoo, face painting. There'll be an alpaca there. And then, uh, and then the actual twelve fifteen is the actual event. Now, are we, are we stopping it? Like last year, the first year we stopped, right? And then last year we kind of rode around and then you know people were able to drop stuff off at del castle or del rec the one year. yeah yeah it'll, it'll be similar to that probably going to cut out a little bit of the logistics of the driving part because okay. it we it was kind of drawn out it was a lot you know it was it was a lot yeah and so the police escort we got to play nice yeah exactly yeah. yeah so um the ride will be uh not shorter but not a lot of driving around and waiting around and stretching it out the whole day. We'll probably consolidate it in about four hours altogether. Wow. Okay. Um, so you're going to, uh, I guess you'll have those details later of exactly where all. Yes. Yeah. 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 We'll have time frame. You know, we'll be here, here, and here at this time. And then. Because there's also like a, I don't know if this is open to the public, so we'll cut this out if it is. But the church, are people allowed to show up there? It's like a little party. Yeah. So church. essentially, we, that's what we hope to do again this year. The, you know, we had Delrac and then we had the church um, up on 202 that, you know, they gave us permission to use but it's kind of like a stopping point where we can stop use the bathroom eat and then it's a chance for people to come see everything lit up everybody in costume and full swing and it's so cool and uh like dance. it's a mini parade yeah bands and we got a dj you know it's 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 a whole parade and you know puts a smile on people's faces uh, yeah we had a great time we had a great time and you guys showed up i tell you what man i couldn't have handpicked a better film crew because not only did you show up and, you know, dedicate your whole day and your time and your expertise to it, but you showed up in full costume in elf tights, top, bottom, the whole nine. I mean, you dress the part, you fit right in. And that was like the best, best part about it. It's, it's and you played character. Yeah. It, yeah. So that was awesome. I fucking loved it. <laughs> it was, uh, it's a lot of fun. Donate, donate. If you can, please donate. Help Motorcycle Santa. Rocco, thanks for coming out. Bro. Hey, man. It was a pleasure, we'll man. Thank you. Again in the future. Definitely, man. You got the uh, first one under the belt. Yeah. What's, uh... Dot Daddy Podcast in person. Thank you. Dot Daddy, baby. Dot Daddy. <laughs> <laughs>